That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I don't know what kind of week you're having, but I, I find it difficult to believe you can have a, a bad weekend in front of you. We got some sunny skies here in the Pacific Northwest on this Friday. We've got a whole bunch of sports to talk about. I don't know what you're doing today. I don't know if you're driving around. I don't know if you're you're having to work. I don't know if you're working out. I don't know if you're, you're you know, you got a day off. You're sitting around a pool somewhere. I'm glad you're along for the ride, whatever it is. Uh, we have a good show for you today. We're going to have some fun. We're going to serve as that escape that so many people, I think, I don't know, man. I Pandemic over, I guess. But lingering effects of what everyone has gone through in the last few years, I still feel like we're not quite right. You know what I'm talking about. The Karens out there. Muddying up the waters at their nearest Costco or on an, on an airplane flight. Screaming at people, overreacting because they don't have their bagel, damn it. Where's my bagel? You forgot my bagel. Everybody's, everybody's uptight. This show is going to be the, the antithesis of that. It's going to be the, the antidote to all that ails and all that complicates. And I noticed today on this Friday a lot of people playing hooky. Memorial Day weekend, a lot of people knocking off at noon or not working at all. But this show is going to work for you today. And, uh, you know, and I know, I know, Michael Block, such a good story, 46-year-old guy who got, uh, who uh, burst onto the scene at the PGA Championship. He missed the cut at the Colonial. His first start since bursting onto the scene at the PGA, he uh, goes out and he misses the cut, 46-year-old Michael Block, and he said basically it was uh, it was the gods. It was the uh, the golf gods sort of uh, with a reckoning. I actually think that his week was so crazy with him out there, you know, uh, making money at the PGA Tour event, and then and then uh, you know turning around. He uh, did every interview possible, every camera, every microphone in front of him. I I kind of wonder how distracted he was all week long as, you know, maybe his competition was out there focusing, flying under the radar on the driving range, playing around to golf, playing another practice round, uh, training, uh, you know, relaxing. He is doing interview after interview after interview. And uh, he was uh, not able to make the cut in his first event after that PGA championship. Uh, struggled there. He's going home. And uh, he said uh, he's going back to uh, – Going back to uh, wherever, where does he live? I don't even know where he lives. Do you know where he lives, Stephen? The block, the uh, PGA Tour, where he's grow, you know, where he's from. But I think he, you know, he's from Mission Viejo, California. Okay, so here's a guy that we didn't know about until like at least a week ago, and over the span of four days, 
he sort of gave golf a breath of fresh air, and then he became kind of uh, you know a tornado like story that you know everybody. It was a great story, and then he misses the cut at his next event. Here he is after finishing tied for fifteenth at uh, the PGA event. Uh, it's it's amazing. Uh... I'm living a dream. I'm making sure that I enjoy this moment. I've learned that after the my 46 years of life, that uh, it's not going to get better than this. There's no way, no chance in hell. So uh, I'm going to enjoy this and thank you. We have loved watching you soak in every moment. In the cherry on top was what Jim Nance called an all-time up and down. This par save right here. What did you see? I hadn't made very many putts today. I, I rolled it the same the last three days, and today, just for some reason, the ball was going over the lip, and uh, that one snuck over the lip, and it made my day, and Rory was awesome, man. Everyone was awesome, and uh, I can't thank everybody enough for being so cool to me. And cheers to the 29,000 uh, PGA Tour professionals, PGA professionals in the world. I, uh, this is for you guys. We cannot wait to see you next year. No qualifying necessary. That par save locked you into a top 15 finish, which means we'll see you at Valhalla. Music to my ears, my friend. Music to my ears. Thank you. And then he went out. He did every interview all week long, and I don't blame him for that. He was soaking it up. And, and maybe maybe part of being an uh, overnight sensation or a four-day sensation in the case of a PGA uh, championship, uh, you know, maybe he what he didn't have was he didn't have sort of the awareness of, hey, I, I kind of need to manage all this extra stuff. I know. I'm in the world of asking people like Michael Block for interviews. And I often find that in cases like this, um, you know, you do get athletes who try to be as accommodating as they possibly can. But I did notice all week long as he was doing interview after interview after interview and popping up on all these shows and uh, the coverage. And I thought to myself, wonder how he's going to do in the wake of this, because I think there's part of it that we don't think about. And look, NFL teams, Major League Baseball teams, college programs, they do tend to kind of manage or compartmentalize a lot of the outside distractions, the outside noise. I think uh, what Michael Block probably learned this week was as valuable to him as what he earned last week or learned last week. Speaking of earning, Carl Malone in the news today, he netted $5 million from his 1992 Dream Team collection. He auctioned off 24 pieces of memorabilia from the Summer Olympics of 92, the uh, Dream Team, game-used jerseys, sneakers from all 12 members of the team. And he got five million bucks for it, and uh, he sold them through Golden, one of the uh, you know, sports collectible auction houses that uh, specializes in such things. But um, the uh, the bulk of the earnings did not come from shoes or other or his own jersey. It came from Michael Jordan's number nine white jersey that he wore against Lithuania in the semifinals. That jersey alone netted $3 million, a record for any game-used Olympics Jordan item. His game-used sneakers uh, sold for $420,000. Uh, Larry Bird's jersey sold for $360,000. Uh, it gives you kind of a, a, a test on uh, where they stand. And it, isn't this the ultimate, like, correct me if I'm wrong, like, Let's, we always have this stupid debate, you know, it's this time of year or whenever LeBron goes out of the NBA playoffs, 
we have this who's the greatest of all time, who's the great, the GOAT debate. And it, it, and we all have our opinions or whatnot, but isn't this the biggest indictment or the biggest piece of evidence that nobody means more in the world of basketball? Nobody is bigger than Michael Jordan. The fact that his jersey is selling for $3 million and Larry Bird's jersey is selling for 360000 and Magic Johnson's jersey sold for 336000 Like, I mean, you just sort of get an idea. Put your money where your mouth is. We can all say, hey, who's the greatest of all time? Well, here's LeBron, and look at what a specimen he is, and look at all the 10 NBA finals he's been to, and here's his championships, and here's Jordan with six titles. And, you know, you could debate back and forth. He's a great competitor. Jordan was a better defender. Jordan was an uh, all-NBA defensive team who had led the league in scoring, has, you know, a perfect record when he gets to the finals. And... And ultimately, like, isn't the biggest piece of evidence that Michael Jordan's Olympic jersey just sold for $3 million? Now, I would like to see LeBron match that with a game-used jersey. It's not going to happen. It's, that's not, you know, LeBron's Olympic jersey is not going to sell for $3 million. Any of his dream team jerseys are not going to sell for $3 million. His Lakers jersey is not going to sell for $3 million. I mean, there is a collector out there who will be like, hey, you know what? There are a series of collectors because it's an auction that are going to be out there going, hey, this jersey is more coveted than any. And not just because it was the 92 dream team, but because Michael Jordan is the GOAT. It's like this is the best jersey of maybe the best team ever assembled in history. And I can tell you, I was there in Athens in 2004. LeBron was there. I watched LeBron and his teammates lose to Puerto Rico. I was there. Puerto Rico was wearing and one sneakers, Stephen. Did you ever wear and one sneakers? You know, fun story about that Puerto Rico team. (laughs) Uh, Carlos Arroyo, he was their best player on that team. And when I was in college, you know, we were at Adidas school. And so we had this guy who had a hookup of shoes in his trunk. It was pretty okay. sketchy, but I bought a pair from him, and they were actually Puerto Rico and one shoes with uh, Carlos Arroyo's like initials on it. Oh, that's phenomenal. So, yes, yeah. I, I did have a pair of and one shoes and uh, I didn't know about Puerto Rico, Carlos Arroyo. Yeah, I was there at the, you know, so here was the deal. Like I, you know, I was we we're, were all kind of paying attention to the dream team. You know, you know it became a theme for the Olympics. Like you have to go cover it's one of the biggest draws, and it became a huge ticket, particularly in the Beijing Olympics. It was just a phenomenal ticket to go and see this team play. But I remember, you know, being at the game and going, this, like, you know, it got to the point where you were kind of looking at it by quarter by quarter. And, you know, the end of the first quarter, as I recall, they were, it was a pretty even game. By halftime, though, Puerto Rico was up by, like, 20. And all of a sudden like a flood of media show up at the arena for the second half because it was evident that like USA was in trouble at halftime. I mean, again, this is a USA team that had Tim Duncan. It had LeBron. It had Carmelo Anthony. It had Allen Iverson. It had Dwayne Wade. It had Lamar Odom, Sean Marion, Stephon Marbury, Carlos Boozer, Amari Stoudemire, this was not a bad team, right, when you look at the sum of the parts. And it was interesting because LeBron wore the number nine in tribute to Michael Jordan as part of those Olympics. And and that Puerto Rico game, uh, LeBron scored five points in that game. And it, it was evident at halftime that they were in trouble. They're down 20. And they made up some of the ground in the third quarter and made it interesting by the fourth quarter. But I think Puerto Rico 
Puerto Rico ended up winning that game by like 19 points. And after the game, I was leaving the arena, and uh, you know, I was uh, going off to write wherever I was going to write that night. You know, because of the time difference, I had time. And as I'm leaving the arena, the USA team bus is outside the arena in Athens, and they're you know they're play they're wait, it's idling, it's waiting for players, and Tim Duncan is laying on the pavement with his duffel bag as like a pillow and his hands over his face, and he's still in his uniform. Now, in today's world, we all would have had cell phone cameras and we all would have taken that picture, but I was just struck by how beatable the USA team looked by 2004. And they blamed it on, hey, well, the team wasn't really assembled with team chemistry in mind and... You know, they weren't really, they didn't have defined role players. I I think that's a bunch of nonsense. Like, yeah, ultimately you want somebody putting together these teams that are going to represent the United States in the Olympics that think about, okay, who are your rotation players? How do they fit together? But you can't tell me that Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, and Carmelo Anthony are walking into any gym in America, those five players, and you can't tell me, that they're getting beat by, you know, like, give me the team that's beating them. And it's not Carlos Arroyo and Jose Rafael Ortiz and uh, Larry Ayuso and Eddie Cassiano. It's it's not those guys. It, it But it, actually it was. And they were wearing and one sneakers. And I remember writing that in the column that I wrote. That they just got beat by a bunch of guys wearing and one. And the only other group of, of basketball players that I'd ever seen as a team that wore and one was Jerry Tarkanian and uh, his teams because they wore and one because Sonny Vaccaro had gone to work for and one and Tark and Sonny were close and so it was just this big thing like I looked down I remember interviewing a couple of the players and I was looking down at their shoes going what are they wearing this this is not even a Nike thing and and uh, the dream team as they called it was also staying on um, a ship they weren't even staying in a hotel LeBron and his teammates had secured this huge luxury yacht that was docked at the pier and was supposed to be like just really exclusive and and you know there were all these reports of like Carmelo Anthony wandering around Greece looking for a nightclub and Lamar Odom doing whatever he was doing at the time but you know this was the three-time defending gold medalist and uh, you know the first Olympic loss since the Dream Team era. And I never, and it was delivered by Puerto Rico, shocking the United States. But you know, it wasn't that shocking because the United States just wasn't that good, and throughout that tournament, they were not that good. And and then came in 2008, the Redeem team in in Beijing, and it was a different feel, and it was uh, it was you know here was the here was the roster for that team. By the way, LeBron on that roster. And that team was very much locked into how do we overcome, you know, what happened four years ago. But here we go. Carlos Boozer, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, um, Carmelo Anthony. The difference was Kobe coming into the fold and Kobe coming in as the team captain. And basically Kobe was going, we are not getting embarrassed again. And so I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how it went down. I will also never forget the fact that the celebrity of basketball in Asia it hit kind of this this swell of enthusiasm in Beijing in 2008. It was so rabid that 
you know, we go to the Foot Locker or we go to, you know, wherever you go to get your shoes at the mall, whatever that store is that's got the shoes on the wall and the mannequins in the window. And and in China, in Beijing, during that, that 2008 Olympics, the mannequins, I'll never forget two things. One, when I got off the plane, the, it was Yao Ming everywhere. And, and they had positioned the Olympics as, you know, one world and, you know, we're opening our arms. This is China. But Yao was everywhere, and there was definitely kind of this undertone of what could China shock the 2008 Redeem team the same way that Puerto Rico did? Could they get into a game and shock them? But what struck me as I went around Beijing was, like, when you go into their version of Foot Locker, every single mannequin was Kobe Bryant. It wasn't just a faceless mannequin. It was Kobe, like literally Kobe. And he, with Kobe's jersey on and Kobe's sneakers on. And, and I was like, that's different. Like, we don't see that in America. Like, Kobe everywhere. And then you go to the arena, and the fans in the arena were all wearing NBA jerseys. And it was a home game for the Redeem team. Everybody was had a Utah Jazz jersey on because Boozer and Darren Williams were playing for the Jazz at the time. Or they had a Miami Heat jersey on because of Dwayne Wade. Or they had a Pistons jersey on because Tayshaun Prince was there. Or Jason Kidd was with the Dallas Mavericks at the time, and certainly they had Lakers jerseys for Kobe, and and uh, and LeBron was with Cleveland still, and but it was all about Kobe, and so much so that when they did the player introductions for the Redeem team, the the uh, introductions for Team USA, everybody's on their feet, and I've never seen this in any arena before or since. Everybody's on their feet. They introduce Kobe, and he his face flashes. Up on the Jumbotron screen that's at the center of the arena, we've all seen this scene. It happens at Blazer Games, uh, you know, 41 times a year when they do player introductions. There's Damian Lillard on the screen, and everybody looks up, and there's a video montage, and, you know, it's the lights are flashing, and, you know, the music's playing. But in Beijing, when Kobe went onto the screen, I looked around, and half of the people in the arena – we're holding cameras, taking pictures of the video screen. And I was going, that's not a real, per- that's, a, that's not Kobe. That's just a video screen. They didn't care. It was, it was a moment. And there was Kobe. Boom. They were taking pictures. I was like, flashes were going off everywhere. And I was like, what, are the, what is going on in this arena? But it was evident that, like, basketball in Beijing during those Olympics meant more than anything that it meant in the United States. And uh, I just I thought of that when I saw, you know, here comes Michael Jordan's jersey from the 92 Dream Team. It sold for more than $3 million. Um, I, I still think he's the greatest of all time. You can have that debate in your living room, but you're not winning it in mine. we got a great show for you today. We're going to start by talking about the hiring practices of USC. How did USC get the Mike Bone hire wrong? There's more coming out about... The fact that he was under investigation at Cincinnati when USC hired him. How did that happen? And does it derail USC at all from a momentum standpoint? They were feeling pretty good about where they were going and where they had been. And remember the hire of Lincoln Riley and Bowden came in and on his introductory news conference for Lincoln Riley, he was puffing his chest out and talking big. When we began this process, our goal was to find the right leader, for USC and our football players. It was never our goal to change the landscape 
of college football with one of the biggest moves in the history of the game. But we did exactly that. That guy got fired or pushed out. And while he was under investigation at Cincinnati for some improper things that he did there and toxic workplace environment, USC hired him to be the athletic director. Uh, Mike Bone, the USC AD, uh, on the hot seat more today with a variety of stories. We'll talk about it coming up next. How do you get that so wrong? Uh, I'll be honest with you. I think, um, you know, when you go to hire an electrician or you're looking for a heating or cooling company or you uh, you got bad knees, right? You know, you have knee problems. Um, you know, I have I have people, you know, I have experience in those areas. I've got on speed dial Dr. Riggs and the team at Reflex. You know, I had my knees bothered me. I had three surgeries. Boom. Um, they're fantastic. PRP, stem cell, uh, they're the best, right? So I run into people and they go, okay, where do you do? I, I go, Reflex. You got to go to Reflex. That's the place. All right. Uh, heating and cooling company. You know, uh, I talk about first call heating and cooling. You hear the commercial breaks. Um, that's my heating and cooling company. We don't call anybody else. I, I lo- positive experiences every single time, 100%. Um, and, and they're good. They're the best. And so I have an electrician. I have a plumber. And if I don't, what I do is I ask somebody that I know and trust, and I go, okay, um, do you have a plumber? Do you have an electrician? I did it once on this show. I remember telling the story. I was, uh, uh, We had just moved into the house that we have now, and in the entryway, there was this really ugly chandelier that was hanging in the entryway. And it was a real issue. I, and I was like, I just don't like that chandelier. Can we just get rid of it? And I was like, yeah, but it's way up there. Like there's a vaulted ceiling in the entryway. And I was like, I don't have a ladder that big. And I remember going and trying to rent a ladder, and I couldn't get it. Then I, I remember trying to go get one of those scissor lifts. And uh, the scissor lift, we couldn't get it in the yard. We couldn't get it to get to move it into the house. Like it wasn't going to work. And so I came on radio, or I know I found a electrician that I looked up online. And the I brought the electrician over, and I said, I need that chandelier down and I bought a new chandelier I already had it and I said I want this one put up and he looked around and he said okay you know I also could do some outdoor lighting for you or I could do this for you I could do that for you and I was like yeah yeah you could do that stuff but I need this chandelier done and everybody listening to this knows what happened you know that the guy came over and he said I don't have my ladder today but I'm gonna do everything else and he replaced some outdoor lighting. He replaced some uh, switches in the house. He, you know, put some timers on, and then, and then he never came back. And so I paid him for a bunch of stuff that that I didn't need done. And the one thing I did need done didn't get done. And I came on this show and I started belly aching about it, how hard it was to find a good electrician that had a ladder. And lo and behold, like 40 callers called in and said. Hey, here's my electrician. Hey, here's my electrician. And, the, you know, great references. And I ended up hiring one of them. And it was like, you know, hey, there's nothing better than word of mouth, right? There's nothing better than a word of mouth recommendation. So it brings me to USC. How in the world did USC end up with Mike Bone, 
as their athletic director, one of the top jobs in America. And, uh, you know, a guy had been at the University of Cincinnati. And you would kind of think that USC would do what anybody else would do. It, they would go out and, and, you know, they'd talk to Cincinnati. They'd ask some questions. They would uh, talk to some people who had dealt with Mike Bone. But it turns out, L.A. Times story today, among others, The Athletic, among others, uh, point out that, that uh, at the time of his hiring at USC in 2019, Mike Bone was being investigated for racial and gender discrimination at Cincinnati. And yet, USC hired him and trotted him out at a news conference. What makes USC special, you feel it the minute you walk on campus. And uh, I uh, want you to know with great humility and honor that uh, I've been selected to lead the preeminent college athletic program in the country. There it is. And also he left out the fact that he was under investigation at Cincinnati and had apparently made a whole bunch of people uncomfortable and that there were concerns that were brought forward. Five women who worked with him at Cincinnati told the Los Angeles Times that he created a hostile work environment that was anxious and toxic for women. Uh, across the industry, people uh, also weighing in, going, you know, there was a, a CFO who was a person of color who said he was made to feel that uh, Bone didn't respect him because of the color of his skin. And, uh, you know, here he is at the introductory news conference, the preeminent university in America. If recruits are listening, that's what we're committed to. They recognize that it's about our student-athletes and creating a world-class experience for them. So that will be something that from day one that we will work extremely hard at ensuring that that is the case. Together, we will build comprehensive excellence, all 21 teams. Comprehensive excellence. Again, Mike Bone, as he's saying those words in 2019, knew that he was being investigated for racial discrimination and gender discrimination at Cincinnati. Do your homework. Make the phone call. Talk to uh, people who have worked with him. Take the temperature at Cincinnati. If you're Carolyn Folt, the president at USC, it's a total misfire by USC. Like, don't People will say, well, how did this happen? I can tell you how it happened. They didn't bother to listen to anybody else. They used a search firm. They leaned on, you know, his his recommendations. Um, you know, he uh, he creates a toxic work environment. There's a great story where Petros Papadakis, the, who's been on this show a number of times, um, tells the story that Bone was so kind of aloof, so into his own self and not what others were doing that, you know, he he had two members of the uh, former football players at USC who were members of the staff, okay, the coaching staff at USC. And and he's in a setting where Papadakis is standing there talking to these two members, and Bone comes over and he talks to Papadakis, and and he uh, introduces these um, you know these employees of USC to their to their boss, and Bone, you know, shakes hands with him and says, "I hope that you guys uh, continue to be involved. We we want a lot of former athletes back in the fold." And Papadakis says, "These guys were on the plane with you." Like they're they're already on staff with you. Like Bone didn't know that he'd already like he'd already been around him. Like everybody rolling their eyes. So um, it's just probably not surprising that what he did at Cincinnati ended up happening. Also, same kind of accusations: hostile work environment, toxic work environment at USC. Again, the greatest predictor of future behavior 
is past behavior. It is. Once upon a time, Darius Miles went to training camp with the uh, Trailblazers, and he said in his uh, training camp uh, news conference, he said he had turned over a new leaf. Darius Miles had turned over a new leaf. This was interesting for people who uh, were Blazers fans. They were very hopeful that Darius Miles was turning over a new leaf. That was really good. Um, this would be a good thing. Like, you know, he was a guy who could play all five positions. If he was on board and focused and locked in, this was a good thing for the Blazers. But, uh, you know, prior to that season, you know, Darius Miles said, you know, he had gotten married and he had turned over a new leaf. And we brought on a psychologist onto this show. Jan Lisenby was her name. I remember it like it was yesterday. We brought her on and uh, we talked about um, Darius Miles. And I said, you know, give us an idea. You've worked with people left and right. You have worked with individuals who are trying to change and do better and correct flaws in their behavior and whatnot. And she said on this show, she said, the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. That people can change and sometimes do change, but still the baseline is the baseline with most people especially when they get to an age where, you know, they're working as a professional. And Mike Bone, certainly at that age, and even Darius Miles as a young person in the NBA, was at that age. Because we may remember by the end of that season, he refused to dress for a game. He had a problem with Nate McMillan. Just, it, it just snowballed on him. So I, I just think, like, the same things that drove me to go and talk to listeners and say, hey, who's your electrician? Tell me who's reliable and owns a ladder um, are the same things that USC should have been doing when it hired an athletic director. Heck, it's what we should all be doing. Oregon State's no different. Oregon State hired university president uh, two presidents ago in F. King Alexander that ended up being an F. King disaster. He had basically been the person of record at LSU while LSU football in the LSU athletic department had a horrible record when it came to the treatment of young women on its campus. And, you know, he was the guy who was around there. And, you know, I was sitting here. I had a daughter who was a junior in high school when that all kind of started and then eventually became a senior. And she was really down to going to either Oregon or Oregon State, maybe University of Portland. She wanted to stay in state, but she really came. To, it really came down for her between Oregon and Oregon State. And I got to tell you, there was a harsh conversation in our living room, not harsh, but a serious conversation in our living room where I said, hey, I don't feel good if he's the president at Oregon State. And I don't feel good about you being there. Like, it, you know, it may be one of these things that it's, hey, it's just more about the culture or the optics of it, and, you know, but I just don't feel great about it. And I got to tell you, there was like a sigh of relief when the Board of Trustees at Oregon State decided, you know, hey, we can't have this guy as the university president. He's got a horrendous record when it comes to the treatment of women on other campuses. Uh, they didn't do their homework either. And some of it is ratched up, wrapped up in the search firms. We know that, right? You know there's a dirty game being played out there. It's probably worth an investigative series that I should do on the search firms, the people who run them the individuals who uh, end up getting hired. See, it's a racket, really, because, you know, a search firm will present a university with a group of candidates, Mike Bone, no different, F. King Alexander, no different. They present a group of candidates to the university and say, hey, we've vetted them. 
here they are, here are our finalists. But what nobody tends to ask is, um, you know, what are the connections with the search firm and the candidates that they that they are pushing forward? Often they're candidates who have done work with said search firms. See, it's a back-scratching game. Search firms, uh, while you're at Cincinnati or LSU, you employ them, and then when they get other jobs, hey, they're handling the search for USC or Oregon State, they turn around and you're automatically in that pool. You're in the in crowd because you've used said search firm, and they're confident that if they put you in that seat at USC or Oregon State, that when there are further openings, they're going to get the business. It's, uh, you know, it's just a little back scratchy, a little cozy game that gets played. And I wouldn't be good at this. You know, if I was a search firm, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do well at this because I would just give you the best candidates and then I'd move forward. I probably wouldn't make as much money as these other search firms. Or I wouldn't be as in demand because then when, uh, you know, nobody would want to hire me because they would know that that's not going to buy them their next job. But it's happening in college athletics, and it's kind of a sick and disgusting game. And I think there are some bad, there are some bad results that happen. And Mike Bone is one of them. F. King Alexander is another. And I always kind of cringe when I see that sort of incestuous little game that gets played by the firms that are largely spending and charging the universities. Twenty-five, fifty, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars to handle the searches. Plus, the search firms get a percentage of the individual's salary. So you know, they're sometimes they're getting two percent as a kickback or five percent as a kickback. It's it's a really weird game that gets played by the firms and the universities. And and you know, I've looked into it. Even Portland State, when they hired their athletic director John Johnson, uh, Portland State used a search firm. Why? Why do you have to use a search firm at Portland State? Well, it's probably because Stephen Piercy, the president at Portland State, he was he a search firm helped hire him. And so, you know, it's it's just it's a bad game to be playing. It's a dangerous game. I liked it better like when firms are not involved. And uh you know, like when Mario Cristobal was hired at Oregon, Rob Bones did not use a firm on that one, but he used one subsequently, he used Parker Search to get Dan Lanning. Now, I would I'd be interested to see if Parker Search is involved in other jobs that ultimately pivot and turn around and Rob Mullins becomes a candidate for. Like, you know, just keep your eye on that stuff. It's a dirty game. We ought to have a search firm on this show. Maybe uh, the listeners and me and Stephen and Judah, we could be a firm. We could charge the universities a couple hundred thousand dollars, and we could play the back-scratching game probably as well as anybody. Or maybe we just wouldn't. Maybe we'd just give them the best damn electrician they could find. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. The Oregon State uh, football assistant coaches have uh, received raises. That's right. A little bit of breaking news there. Bunch of raises. Nick Daschle covers the team. He's going to join us here in about 15 minutes to talk about the raises and what he's learned. Jim Mahalchek, the run game coordinator at Oregon State, among those getting big raises. But Daschle's got all the details. He'll be joining us here coming up. Stick around. You'll find out what the cost of doing business in Corvallis is these days. Um, a lot on our plate on uh, this Friday as baseball and softball is in full swing. Uh, yeah, Oklahoma tied a Division One record. They won their 47th straight game uh, in softball. Uh, interesting to see that. Do you would you want to lose one, Stephen? Like you know, just going into the postseason. Let's just say you know, you're Oklahoma. You've won 46 in a row. 
you're ahead nine to two against Clemson in the uh, Super Regional. Uh, you know, wouldn't you have wanted to lose one maybe middle of the season just to kind of reset, or do you like the momentum of being undefeated entering uh, NCAA tournament play? No, I want to be undefeated. I want to be undefeated, and I don't want to lose ever. So actually, they're fifty-five and one, but they've won forty-seven straight. Yeah, like I, I don't want to lose another one. Um, I want to go for greatness. You know, I want to be the best. The, when people think of the best teams. That's me. Uh, you know, that, that's the way I that's the way I am. Like, I just don't want to lose. So, no, I don't want to lose at all, John. I want to keep winning and uh, build the pressure because I think, you know, I thrive under pressure a little bit more than others. So I, I'm, I'm willing to take that on. They got a player uh, named Sidney Sanders who has hit home runs in three straight games, three straight NCAA tournament games, and they are uh, looking to break the all-time record for wins. Tomorrow they will play. Um, they will play uh, tomorrow against Clemson. They tied Arizona's all-time record of 47 straight, set in 1997. The Sooners try to break the record tomorrow in a best-of-three series with Clemson. It'll be game two of that series. They beat Clemson 9-2 to two today. But that's not our big splash. I actually think I actually think knowing now that the record was 47, you wouldn't want to suffer a loss. Like, get the record. Now you can't have a loss, though. You're in the postseason. But I do think there's something, too. Like, we have seen teams that are great during the regular season that don't win at all. I do think there's something that – a loss sometimes I think can be – I don't want to say good, but I'll say beneficial. Like, are you talking about, like, the Warriors, they won 73, didn't win the finals. The Mariners, yes. 116. Yep. Uh, I don't know. I disagree with you. Like, I, I feel like you, it's okay to go for that record and be the best team ever, right? I, I think but isn't the point cool. to win a championship? It is, but it's as Giannis would say, it's not everything, it's not a failure. <laughs> but no, I really just think like I, I think there's more benefit if you are to be the best regular season record, and then you end up winning the championship. Like you're gonna go down in history as being maybe the best team ever, and I think that's that's something that I would love to take on as a challenge. And I think a lot of athletes would do that as well. I, I'm surprised that you're not yeah. that way. I feel like I'm you, not that way because I I was there as the 2011 New York Giants who finished the regular season at nine and seven. They not only made the Super Bowl, but they beat the Patriots, who had a phenomenal record that season. And I think the Patriots were were they not chasing they, perfection? Yeah, they were undefeated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you have a team that's nine and seven, barely gets into the playoffs, but just is playing great football at the end of the year, playing against a team that had been perfect. And I, I can remember, you know, late in that year, you know, everybody's interviewing the '72 Dolphins going, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about the Patriots chasing perfection? And and they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. But that, you just mentioned it, the 72 Dolphins. Had they lost one game, we wouldn't even, we would never talk about that team, ever. We would never talk about it. But since they're undefeated, we talk about them. They go down in history. That's why I would love it. Like, I feel like, okay, yeah. All right. I'd rather have the championship, though, you know? Like, if you give me a choice between great regular season and uh, you know, hey, you win the you win the Super Bowl, like you would take the Super Bowl, right? Like if right. you knew in the end you didn't win the Super Bowl, you'd rather have the Super Bowl than the best record. Right. I would much rather have the Super Bowl than the okay. Than most we agree wins. on that. Yes, I just I just want it both. Does that just make me selfish? I'll no. be, be the best. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> like ideally, though, yeah, you set the best. You know, ideally, you get into the playoffs, you got the best record, but you know, the Patriots, I think they were like. 12 and 0 or maybe 13 and 1 just you know they were 13 and 3 by the time they finished the uh, end of the season but it, I don't think that was the, I don't think it actually was that year for the Patriots that they went like they were pushing towards undefeated 
But it was, uh, they were 13-3, and three, you know? Great season. Tom Brady didn't win the Super Bowl. Lost 21-17 to a team that was 9-7 and seven in the regular season. So there you have it. All right, this does bring us to our big splash. It has nothing to do with any of that. Big splash involves John Gruden. What? Let's do it. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, the New Orleans Saints uh, turn to former Raiders coach John Gruden. Apparently this offseason, and they're trying to get new quarterback Derek Carr acclimated and give him a familiar helping hand. They brought Gruden in to work with Derek Carr in installing their offense during offseason workouts. He is working with the offensive coaching staff under Dennis Allen, the the, the head coach. Uh, Carr spent uh, a whole bunch of time with John Gruden. And from 2018 through about the first five games of the 2021 season, apparently the offense is very similar to what the Saints employ. They're using a version of the West Coast offense. And Peyton and uh, Gruden, uh, Sean Peyton and Gruden, basically uh, had this offense that they got together, and the Saints are using it now moving forward. And so um, they are really interested, apparently, in John Gruden's influence on this. Saints offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael, told the uh, New Orleans Times Picayune, quote, he's a great fit for us. We'll cater to things that he likes as long as it fits with our personnel. Uh, There's a lot of similarities, he told the paper, between their offenses. Is this part of John Gruden's path back, or is this just uh, John Gruden, who was untouchable and unhirable as a head coach or a coordinator, after the homophobic and misogynist emails that were detailed in the New York Times, is this just John Gruden, you know, dabbling and consulting in a way that the public will be okay with as long as he isn't the guy? How do you read it? It's tough because I'm trying I'm trying to look this up real quick because I know Dennis Allen was with the Raiders. Yeah, they know each other well. Yeah, They're, so th- like this is his, his buddy's going, hey, I, I'm not afraid to hire you. I know who you are. Yeah, so like I feel like that's what it is. I feel like. Dennis Allen may be the only person that would really go out of his way to like bring in John Gruden and the fact that he has a relationship with Derek Carr. I feel like that's the reason. Like they all, it's because they have a relationship. If it's some random coach, I don't think he brings him in. And I don't know that you know. I don't think John you know John Gruden's never going to be able to be a head coach again for what he did and how he's going at the NFL. But like, I just think it's it it's the old good old boy network in the NFL, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of what it is. These. These coaches all know one another. If they have good relationships, they bring them in to hopefully get the best out of their players. I think it kind of shows that Dennis Allen maybe a little still in over his head as an NFL head coach, mm-hmm. and uh, I, that would worry me if I was a Saints fan. That you know he he feels like he really needs to bring in all these other guys to help him out. But I mean, it, it is what it is. John Gruden, I think he just loves football. Probably he just misses it, so he wants to get back in it somehow. Yeah, because I, I I think about him and I'm thinking he doesn't need the money, and so what he must be after is either he loves to coach football or loves to be around the game, or he is just trying in some subtle way to resurrect his career. And I, I talked about this today. I, I, I met with a, uh, a crisis management uh, person, a PR person today, and talked with them about the job they do a little bit. And one of the things that, that this individual told me when you know I asked specifically about uh, coaches or executives who are involved in big time scandals, like you know, how, do, how, what is the path back for for somebody in a scandal situation? And 
they said, you know, the first thing is to get someone to hire you because it signals to everybody else that it's okay to hire you. So it may be Dennis Allen, who formerly worked with John Gruden, it may be Dennis Allen going, hey, I'm going to do you this by bring you in to help install the offense. And by the way, we're not going to keep this a secret because they they could easily have kept that a secret. Like, you know, hey, we worked with consultants. They don't have to say John Gruden helped them install the offense. But I think this is a way to sort of cleanse John Gruden's reputation to some extent uh, and get him back and say, hey, look, he is. He's hireable. Uh, he's uh, he's you can bring him in. It's OK. By the way, on the Patriots front, it was 2007. It, the 2007 season where the Patriots um, yeah, started the season 15-0, and 15-0 and that season. And, uh, and then they played uh, the New York Giants that year uh, to, get, to get win 15, and uh, they posted, um, you know, an undefeated season. And then they met in the Super Bowl, and the Giants beat them in the Super Bowl, ending their perfect season. So it was 07 that that happened, and four years later, the Giants, uh, the Giants got him again with a 9-7 and team. So there you have it. Uh, all right, coming up, Nick Daschle covers Oregon State, where he's going to join us to talk about what he's learned about the staff at Oregon State. We'll play Punch It Audio later, and it will be along with the 5 at 5. I hope you're having a beautiful, sunny day on this Friday, Memorial Day weekend. I want to thank Everybody out there who has uh, served our country or continues to serve our country in the armed forces, or, and especially uh, those who have given their lives and the families of those who have given their lives serving our country, I, I can't go into this weekend without thinking about that. What is the cost of doing business in the Pac-12 conference? Uh, if, when it comes to assistant coaches, Washington's assistant coaching salary pool is $7.48 million. It's a lot of money. Recently gave uh, big raises to their offensive coordinator. Oregon's at $6.7 million. Washington State, $3.7 million. You see the difference there? Oregon State is boosting their salary pool. Again, Nick Dashiell has the details. I'll give you the details before we bring Dashiell on, but he just uh, posted a story in which he outlines the salaries for the 2023 season. The pool is at $4.75 million. That's an increase of $820,000 from last season. And by the way, um, Oregon State has increased its assistant salary pool by $2.2 million since the end of Gary Anderson's era. Gary Anderson was bellyaching at the time. He didn't have the money. He couldn't hire new assistant coaches. He wasn't happy with his staff. Remember that? Yeah, I do. Well, the Beavers' 10 assistant coaches got raises. The largest raise went to the offensive line coach and run game coordinator Jim Mahalchek, who will earn $775,000 next season. That's $200,000 raise for Mahalchek. He's now the second highest paid assistant on the staff behind Brian Lindgren, the offensive coordinator, who is making $825,000. Um, the other coaches, Blue Adams, defensive back coach, got a four, uh, $400,000 salary over the next two seasons. That's a $75,000 raise. Jake Cookus, special teams coach, $370,000. That's a $70,000 raise. Uh, Anthony Perkins, cornerback uh, coach, is making $270,000. He got a $60,000 raise. 
uh, bringing Nick Dashiell on, who uh, did the records request, got the salaries, did the legwork, take a victory lap, Dashiell. Uh, give me an idea. When you're trying to tell this story, Dashiell, like, what's, like, you and I are sitting down having coffee. What are you leading with? Well, I, uh, first thing I want to look at is, is who's getting what and how, how big a raise do they get and what's it, you know, what's it mean in terms of who, who are they really targeting in this group? And, and it's pretty clear that Jim Mahalchik was job one on this, on this group, making sure that he's happy and, and staying here. I mean, they gave him, that's the biggest, that's the biggest salary increase. I think I remember under Smith during his tenure here, if I, I, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure 200,000 over one season is the largest I've seen, you know, since, since Smith has been here. Um, and now he has moved into the, you know, the second spot in, in, in terms of salary behind Brian Lindgren. Um, he's, he's passed um, uh, Trent Bray. Um, so they're clearly <laughs> want to make him happy. And I, and, and he's pretty easy to keep, stay, keep happy, but you know, there's no, no, no point in, uh, you know, taking any chances because, as we know, that offensive line is what makes this team go. Yeah, because if I'm an opposing team and I'm looking to improve my run game, Mahal checks the hire, right? Do you get a sense that maybe what happened here is that somebody came calling on Mahal check, or are they just being proactive? I think they're being proactive. I mean, he's, I mean, I'm not saying he's, you know, old, 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 but he's, you know, he's getting up there in, in years and, and so I don't know, you know, I don't know that, you know, everybody's going to, going to want it. You know, he's been around a while and, and people know who he is. I don't, you know, I don't know for sure if people went after him, but I am surprised that they really only lost one, one coach off the staff. And I mean, God, the combination of the culture at that place and the fact that they, they keep raising salaries. I mean, they're, they're keeping people happy. I mean, the yeah. other one that stood out to me, I thought was, they they continue to 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 add to um, Mike McDonald's salary. He's up to four hundred fifty thousand now, and he's not part of that four point seven five million dollars salary pool. To, he's the strength and conditioning coach. I mean, he's you know behind the coordinators and and Mahalchek. He's the he's the next highest paid guy, and you know it's important that, that what he's done his his job that he's done down there is every bit as important as anybody else there because he's got these guys in shape and and it's the offseason program is humming and and they're willing to pay for it nick dashell is with us covers oregon state um look um obviously this takes a financial commitment from the athletic department scott barnes has to be on board with investing in football you note in the piece it's $2.2 million more than the staff Gary Anderson had at the end of his tenure. Do you get a sense on is that money coming from somewhere else? Is this revenue that, you know, they're anticipating with the expansion or the renovation of Reeser Stadium? Like, how are they coming up with the funds? Well, I, I think it's all a combination of, of, of what what you were just saying about Reeser Stadium. They, they see the revenue you know, that, that, that place is going to throw off the interest in football that, that, you know, this program has generated in the last few years. And they see the, you know, the dollars increasing. And I mean, the best way to keep this thing going is, is to keep the staff in place. And yeah, that's, I mean, I mean, you saw quickly those, those luxury boxes and, and seats went over research. I mean, 
they were that, that they weren't cheap at all, and I mean they were gone quickly. So yeah. I mean they wouldn't they, even quote me a price on them. Dash, well, I was last guy. I said, "What's the price on these things?" And they're like, uh, "They were looking at me, going out of your price range." I know. I was there when they told you that. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't even give me a number. I mean, they gave me the number after after they were all sold and everything. But uh, yeah, no, they they looked at us and like you guys. Yeah, it, it's like when you go into a restaurant and they have the prices on the menu and then it says market, you know not to ask, yeah. you know, that, nope. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Uh, Dashiell, let me ask you here, like Jonathan Smith preaches culture and continuity. I believe he only lost six players to other schools through the transfer portal. He's got some other guys in there that are uh, floating around in the portal. But, um, you know, how does the continuity of the staff in your mind l- correlate with the continuity of the roster. Oh, it's, I mean, at this point, it's just starting to be a broken record because I mean, they, they, we, we, I think we talk about this almost every year about how, 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 the, how they, they really don't lose many players because they just love being in this program. And it's, it, it's obviously not for everybody. I mean, it's Oregon attracts a different kind of athlete than Oregon state, but Oregon state, has, has you know found their niche they and they've got coaches that that you know know how to know how to coach and teach I don't think they're you know they're they're demanding but they're not overbearing and they they let guys live their lives and let them become adults and it's worked I mean shoot I mean there was I, I think Oregon State might have been the only only team in the Pac-12 that didn't lose a single player during the second transfer portal window. I don't think anybody other than, you know, I think four walk-ons, and I'm not counting, I'm counting scholarship guys. I don't think any of the scholarship guys left. And you would think after spring, it's pretty clear who, you know, your role on the team, and and nobody left. I'm not saying that somebody won't leave here eventually because they've got to make some at some point, they got to probably pare a few <clears throat> numbers down to get to the 85. But but for but nobody left, and so I mean that just speaks to how guys like to be in this program. Nick Dashel with us covers Oregon State. I'm looking at the beginning of the schedule for the Beavers. It's San Jose State on the road. It's September 9th. UC Davis opening the new Research Stadium, and then it's San Diego State at home. Uh, let's break down those three games. How, you know, I I like the schedule for Oregon State. I'm, you know, there's a, a real good shot. They're three and zero there, but you know, where where are the challenges as you see them? Well, the the, the challenges I think start. I think they start with the Pac-12 schedule. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I don't know how you can be, you know, every game you got to take seriously, obviously, but. But on paper, the three non-conference games they have, those should be wins. You know, San Jose State, and maybe the opener is maybe the opener is a, a wild card because you never know what the other team has got. They're both, you know, kind of feeling each other out. But you know, I think I saw somewhere where San Jose State was like, I want to say, somebody had a you know rank one through one thirty, and San Jose State was like number one hundred. Um, doesn't mean they're not better than that, but obviously they're not thought well thought of. I, I just don't see any of those those three games being ones that you're that you would say, mm, yeah, that's it could be two and one. I, I don't see that. And then and then with Washington State, the opener, you know, it's a Pac-12 game, it's a road game, but 
I mean, I'm, I've been saying quite, for quite some time that I'm, I'm not high on Washington State at all, and I'd be shocked if Oregon State doesn't go to the Pullman and win that, that one. So, I mean, this, this Utah game on September 29th is just, I mean, it's as big a game as they've had at Reeser in, in I don't know how long. Because, I mean, if you win that game and start off 5-0, and I mean, it's, you're in the top 10. I mean, I, I, we haven't talked about Oregon State in the top ten in what years? Yeah, and I think the way I see decade. the way I see that one, Dashiell, is you know they have Utah, and then uh, two or two weeks later they have UCLA at home, both at home. If they win those right. two games, the rest of their schedule is Washington State, Cal, Arizona, Colorado, Stanford, until you get to the last two weeks of the season. They, I mean, I'm I'm going to say it. They, you can make a case that Oregon State could be 10-0 and 0 and hosting Washington in Week 11 and then going to Oregon in Week 12. Like I think for the Pac-12, that would be phenomenal. And, of course, for the Beavers, it would be lights out. It's, it, it's the best schedule in the Pac-12, I think, this year. Even though they have, you know, play more road games in conference than not, it's the best, it's the best schedule. In the, I mean, because the three non-conference games should be wins. The road games, you know, Wazoo, I mean, Cal, Arizona, Colorado, I mean, they could lose any of those, but on paper, they, they'll probably be favored in all four of those. Um, the Oregon game is the only road game that they have that, you know, obviously that's going to be a dicey one, and Washington, the last home game is going to be a dicey one. But, but you're right. I mean, you know, if everything comes together and they play, the defense comes together and, and this, you know, the quarterback situation gets itself sorted out. Let's talk I mean, about that. Let's talk about that. Let, I'm going to stop you right there. The quarterback situation, Aiden Childs, spring game, but he's still, you know, I don't even think he's 18 yet. Um, and and DJ, yeah, DJ, uh, he's the transfer. Um, you got Gulbrinson, who you kind of know who he is. Maybe he's improved a little bit. In your mind, does who is does the player that starts the opener is that player the starter all year or could we have a situation where Gulbrinson starts or DJ starts in week one and you look up in week seven or eight and now it's someone else? I've a, I've asked Brian Lindgren this. I haven't asked Jonathan, but I asked: Is there a possibility you could play? both quarterbacks in, you know, the first couple games, does, does this keep going? And he, he said it's not out of the realm of possibility. I'd be a little surprised if that happened. But I think at this point it's so close. It's it's that close between those two. I, I think a lot of people are writing off Gulbrinson, but I, he's never been a full-time starter. He, he, got, he got his feet wet last year. He was pretty good, you know, at times, and he won seven out of eight games. Um, you know, give him an off season to be the you know to be the starter. Let's see what happens in August. But I, I think either one of those guys could start. I don't. Yeah, I don't honestly think Childs will start just because I just like, physically he's going to be physically and, and probably the, the the position of what it demands. And given you know who he has to beat out, I don't see him being in there. But yeah, I, I mean, I. I think there's there's possibility that there could be some you know some some moving around here early in the season on the quarterback just because it's at this point it's that close now maybe once we get to August 
skill become clear, you know, somebody will take over. But at this point, yeah, it's it's, it's that close. All right, give me one thing Nick Daschle's doing this weekend uh, on this beautiful, sunny uh, Friday. What, what are you doing for this Memorial Day weekend? You know, I'm not doing it. I mean, I, I'm going to – I got I got to follow the track a little bit of the track Oregon State track which I've never had to do before. Well, they're good. <laughs> they're good. They're making you work. Oh, I know. No, I'm just gearing up for you know wedding weekend here in a couple weeks. You know, both daughters and I'm throwing on the tux and gonna look you know like a proud dad. And What's that gonna dad. be like for you? I have three daughters. Help prepare me for that. Like you've been through this wedding stuff. You have daughters. I have daughters. Our listeners have daughters. I'm sure. Uh, what's that been like this this last year or so? I'm just well. I mean, a lot of it's been Megan's pretty much taking care of the details. She really doesn't want us too involved in, in any of this stuff. So so she's been taking care of most of it. But um, I'm just hoping I can keep it together. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know what it's like to have daughters. Yeah. And, I mean, there's probably, I don't know, is there is there any any more, you know, emotional time than you know, kind of handing off the daughter to to someone else? You like know. this guy? Maybe. You like him, or do we need to give him get him on the show? Yeah, he's a great guy. He doesn't know a thing about sports, which is which is great actually. <laughs> <because> <laughs> I, just, I mean, you don't, you don't have to have that talk with him. No, oh no, I mean, I mean, I. I think I told you the story about how my daughter, she once said, she goes, Dad, Joe is under orders never to talk to you about sports. And I said, well, why is that? And she says, because he asked me, did the Raiders play the Blazers? <laughs> I said, oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> oh. Well, so I said, we all have our oh. thing, don't we? Are you going to have to give a speech at the wedding? Or are you going to give a toast? Yeah. I don't. I mean, uh, do you know yeah, what you're gonna I, do, or what do you, you? You need to get on TikTok and Instagram and watch other toasts. My goal is not to get in trouble. That's my okay. goal. Not to get, yeah. not to get in trouble. Play and then, it safe. You know, we got father daughter dance. And, and, All right. You know, You'll be fine. You'll be fine. It's, minute to minute. It's six, six hours. It's a six hour. I just got the agenda today. Is an agenda? Oh boy. Well, it's actually right. a two-day deal where she's getting, she's doing, we're doing the wedding, and then the next day we're doing, doing a ceremony at 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 the Catholic Church. So it's a two, it's a doubleheader. He's got a doubleheader on the horizon. All right, spend your weekend relaxing. All right, Nick yeah. Daschle, good work. Thank you for joining us. All right, we'll see you. There he is. Good stuff from Daschle. Oregon State's investing in football. Good for Jonathan Smith. Chasing continuity, you need that. It's fundamental. It's foundational. I told you at the spring game, I walked by him on the field, and we were talking. I said, hey, I was looking at the portal. Did you know you only lost six players in the portal? Of course he did. Two other schools. I said, Utah was second with eight. I said, what's that about? And he said, culture, and walked away. Um, you know, I think that's what Oregon State's angle is, and, I, you know, they have to have an angle. Every program has to have an angle. Oregon's got an angle, too. Utah's got an angle. Washington's got an angle. Everybody's figuring out what their initiative is and, and how they're going to play the system. But uh, it's interesting to see that the continuity of the coaching staff, the investment. What did uh, George Klyovkov say when he uh, took over as the Pac-12 commissioner? They were really trying to get the universities to invest in football and in men's basketball. And 
the return on investment was big. Here's Klyovkov talking about it back uh, in 2022. I think when you make those investments in coaches and in facilities and other football-related matters, you know, that you end up getting better recruits. Uh, I think uh, we're already starting to prove that from the coaching changes that we've made uh, just in the last month or two. Uh, better recruits lead to more wins. That leads to direct and indirect revenue, alumni engagement, uh, increased undergraduate applications. I mean, you know, the, the return on investment for investment in football is undeniable. Did you see what he did there? He connected the investment in your coaching staff to your applications at the university there's a path there and it's true or you know oregon state saw an uptick in admissions applications after going to the fiesta bowl and beating the pants off notre dame 41 to 9 oregon saw an uptick in admissions and applications uh after making a final four in men's basketball with dana altman and after getting to the uh you know the bcs title game in 2011 and the national championship college football playoff final in 2015 Oregon had upticks in each of those years. There is a correlation there, and Klyovkov is doing it, and Colorado's too. Like you know, Klyovkov talked about this in uh, when as it pertained to Coach Prime getting hired at Colorado. Listen here. He is a proven winning coach. Sure, exactly. Yeah, so I don't think calling it an experiment is is fair. Okay. Uh, what I will say is, um, for me, it's another example of our school making an investment on football and getting an immediate return on that investment. Um, season ticket sales, sponsorships, donors, the collective, everything is stepping up to support Deion Sanders. And I welcome him to the conference. I think it's gonna be great for the conference. I, you know, Their first two games next year are on the road at TCU. That's gonna be a great game. I can't imagine what the ratings are gonna be for that game. And their second game is a home game against Nebraska, rekindling of that great rivalry. And by the way, the fact that it's a Big Ten, Pac-12 game, even better. So can't wait for that game. There you go. His his mind may have changed on the Big Ten since that interview. Still, uh, the investment in football. Now, Oregon State is investing in its assistant coaching pool. It's not a bad way to go. Leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio on this Friday. I hope you're having a great day out there. There's a mouse in the house. Anna's in the studio. Um, hey, Nick Daschle was just on. He was talking about Oregon State's coaching staff getting paid $2.2 million in raises in the assistant coach uh, salary pool. Good for Jonathan Smith getting that done. But Anna, he was talking at the end of the interview about his daughter getting married and he's concerned about breaking down, getting through six hours of wedding, two-day affair. <laughs> between the uh, uh, the uh, wedding and then the ceremony in the Catholic Church. Oh, wow, yeah. This is a big deal full mass. There. Full mass? I don't know. Yeah. I didn't ask that question. Yeah, yeah. sounds like it's going to be a full um, mass. And then... Uh, a lot of sitting and standing. Okay, but, give, you know, three daughters over here. Yeah. You Are know. you ready? No, not now. There's, there's <laughs> seven and nine and 20. Yeah. No, I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah, I would be upset. In fact, what is this, what is this like eighteen twelve? You know, you're going on record right now. <laughs> you know, uh huh. But you look back, yeah. like I'm big on ancestry, yes, genealogy. You, are. you go on what I like to call genealogy benders. Yeah, <laughs> hey, uh -huh. it could be worse. I know. You know, I know. I'm if not... you're gonna have a bender, yeah, that's not a bad one to have. I'm not smoking cigarettes. <laughs> I'm not, you know, binge drinking alcohol. Yeah, I'm not hanging out you at the just... strip club, it's making just... it rain. Oh I'm just gosh. on ancestry. Yeah, you know, 
Poor you. Um, but I, I do know that, like, when you can get into, like, the 1800s and 1700s in yes. some cases, yes, you'll see, like, a 37-year-old man marrying, like, a 15-year-old. Ooh. You know? Yeah, really? Like, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. You'll okay. see some wonky things. Yeah. That happen. Yeah. Like, you know, generation upon generation and generation ago. Well, they needed some hands to work the farms, yeah. you know? But you're seeing now, nowadays, people getting married older. Yeah. Yeah, they well, for the most part, or they're not—they're choosing to got, not get married at all. I mean, you know, that's kind of the Gen Z thing to do. No, but just... our kids talk about getting married, which makes oh, me our happy. kids talk yeah. about it. It makes yeah. me happy because it makes me think that they must have a positive association for marriage. So far, you so know? far, yeah. Despite jury, despite still this, out. despite this radio show in the four o'clock hour, <laughs> they're still feeling it. Let's not <laughs> let's not build ourselves up too much. They're still feeling it. Yeah. Uh, are you concerned that you will not be able to get through a wedding like without mm. crying and losing your you know? Oh, proposer? I'll cry. I'm come on. That's 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 assumed. Do you I'm think gonna cry. I, I think... cry at every I I cry at everyone's weddings. It doesn't matter whether I'm related to them or not. I just cry because like. I, don't. I always think it's such a beautiful thing. But. I don't. I sit back and I go, is this going to last? And I kind of oh evaluate. God. Of course you do. I set odds. I text other people who are in the crowd and go, hey, what do you think? You know? Shocking. Plus 220. Yeah, you do the over-under. That they make Terrible. it. No. Terrible. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, the, uh, I think there's more pressure on the dad in a, in a girl's, a daughter's wedding than the mom. How so? Dad's giving a toast. Dad's doing the father-daughter dance. Mom's just, you know, in a, oh, in a dress. Yeah, I guess so. Kind of talking to everybody that's there and doing all the planning. Yeah, much more involved in the planning. But the mom doesn't have stage time the way the dad does. True. At a, at a daughter's wedding. True. Yeah, it would be hard for, like, an introvert dad, right? Yeah, like me. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're such an introvert. Um, you know, it could, because you are kind of on stage alongside your daughter father of father of the bride he needs to watch father of the bride i think by the time it gets to the third daughter i'll be pretty good at it and i'll be looking around going man anybody else need me because like, now i'm good at it <laughs> yeah you know well what i hope for dashiell is that he won't be so consumed with you know the stuff that doesn't matter that he isn't able to enjoy the stuff that does matter what does matter what does matter is because, um, look, let's be real. There's a lot of, you know what, about weddings that doesn't matter. In the end... Can you not say the you know what? Are you talking about the BS? Because I want to say, like, I want to say a bad word, but I, I can't do that. Like, you're talking about the catering, the food, the... Well, food matters. you, you got to have enough food. you okay. got You can't the underserve... Linen, what color the linens are. It, that, that, see, that's, the shape of the tables. That, the centerpiece. Nobody's going to remember the centerpiece or the decorations... Like very, I'm not gonna say nobody's gonna remember those. Very few. But that's the crap that just doesn't matter. The stuff that matters is that he gets some really special moments of connection with his daughter, and that he has moments within all the puss and fuss that he can sit and actually just take it all in. Yeah. It's that's good. the stuff that matters. Yeah. Is like. Having a moment where, let's say, ideally, he gets a moment with his daughter and her groom, you know, mm -hmm. her soon-to-be husband, yep. and he actually has a second to, like, impart to them whatever wisdom he might have about, you know, 
coupling and marriage and, you know, actually gets that. Cause yeah. Just the very fact, like, if you sit back and you look at life and the fact that he's alive, yeah. right, to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle and do all this stuff, that's what matters. I uh, I think there's some pressure on the dad, the father of the bride, yeah. and the best man and the maid of honor, because those are traditional speeches at most weddings. Is that what he's and worried about the most? Is no, that the he says he's just holding it together. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I've been the best man at a few weddings, okay? Yeah. Like, you know... All my friends, they pick me as the best man. I'm the best man. Here we you go. Know. Here we there go. Maybe, I think, five weddings. Not that anybody's counting. I was the best man. Not that many. Yeah. And, five? And I was, weddings four and five, I was much better giving a speech. <laughs> the first one, and again, are you- You've seriously been the best man in five weddings? Yeah. Five people said, that's my guy. <laughs> name that's names. That's my guy. Name names. One of them was my brother. Okay. 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 Well, One that of still them counts. Was my college roommate yeah. uh, Z. Yeah. Um, Chip. I was the best man at his wedding. Yeah. My other friend Chris, who got yeah. kicked in the head by a horse when he was a kid. Well, you know, so was, his judgment I might was have there been a little for, off. I was there for that. Yeah. I was there for that. And John Strong, the voice of American soccer. Oh, that's right. I forgot so, about that. Dang. You know. And listen, how is it that you have? Achieved that status. What do you mean? Five oh, this insult- times. Oh no, there's six. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot the grape farmer uh, friend of mine. Grape farmer yeah. friend. Six. Dang. Five of those marriages are still together. Well, there you go. My batting average: yeah. five out of six. Not bad. I'm like Tris Speaker over here, just hitting lasers into the outfield. <laughs> so, but, what was your advice for Dashiell on giving speeches? And I'm, stuff I've never and... been the father of a bride. What kind of oh. advice can I give on that moment? Um, I told him to go listen to some other speeches. Now, see, you have the benefit in this era of getting on TikTok, era. Instagram. You can see other speeches. Back then, I was cold. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was listening to uh, you know channeling Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln. That's all we had when it came to speeches. Kennedy <laughs> era. You know, that's all we had. You know, <laughs> nowadays you can get on and the- you didn't you didn't give <laughs> best man speeches like you were giving some kind of like. <laughs> Oratory oh, yeah, no. that was going to be marked down in the pages of history. I'm just saying, I got I got better with each one <laughs> because I understood the the audience better each yeah, time. That's the key. Know your audience. Right? I understood what they were looking for was the see the brides. If you're you're the best man, let's just say you're the best man. Yeah. The what the or in, in Dashiell's case, you were the father of the bride. Right. The opposite side, the visiting team. <laughs> <laughs> just wants to know something about the person that you're close with, either your daughter or if you're the best man. They want to know something about the right, groom. Right. They want to know who is this person. Right. Because Aunt Jenny or you know Uncle Charles is sitting in the audience. Right. They don't really know this guy. Right. Okay. Right. And so they're looking and it's going. It's a marketing. It's a marketing. Uh, a little bit. Presentation. A little bit of that. Really. And then a little bit of advice. <laughs> Got to have some humor. Humor's good. Not everyone's good at humor. Um, no, but if you're not, not good, good at, humor, at humor, don't try too hard. Right. To do that. Right. Um, one of the best uh, speeches I ever heard at a wedding was uh, there was uh, a bunch of people who had gone up and knew the individual bride uh, because she was a makeup artist. Okay. okay. And they kept the 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 bridesmaids kept giving speeches going. I met her at the makeup counter at Mac. I met her at the makeup <laughs> counter at, you know, whatever. Right. L'Oreal or whatever it was. I don't even know. Yeah. And then so the best man got the mic and he said, 
I actually met him at the makeup counter, and the whole <laughs> audience just lost it because everybody was like, it's the same damn speech over and over again. That's funny. But uh, it's, uh, you know, I just think no, you, the audience is looking for, hey, help me understand this, this union. Right. I know the I know the home team. I don't know the visiting team. So don't get up there and like trash anyone. No, because no. you know, even if you think My, you're being funny and doing it yeah. in jest, that is in I poor did that. taste. I did that at the first <gasps> wedding. I was the See. best man. My friend is cheap at the first wedding. Yeah. He was he was frugal. Right. Frugal. And I started with frugal jokes. Mm-hmm. And then kind of read the room going hmm. his side was laughing. Yeah. Her side was going, who is she marrying? Mm-hmm. This frugal guy is he cheap? Right. So, um, yeah, and you don't end, want to create reasonable no. doubt. And you're on not day the star one. of the show either. You, right. You have to rec- you have to recognize that you're like you know the frisbee dog at halftime at a football game. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. Or that gal that comes out on the unicycle and spins the plates and stuff. You got to be good. You got to be. You got to hold. You got to <laughs> hold the uh, <laughs> the the audience's attention. But it, nobody buys a ticket to an NBA game to see the halftime show. Or right. a football game. Right. You know? You're like, there's a break in the action. This guy's going to try to kick a 25-yard field goal for $20,000 and Dr. Pepper sponsoring it. That's you. <laughs> and so you have to realize you don't want to take too much time. You, uh, you uh, need to be um, informative for one side. And then you have to end with, you know, your best wishes for them and mm-hmm. whatnot yeah. and a toast and, yeah. what, you know, and then you're good. But also, like, what's the... I mean, what's so bad about Dashiell breaking down? Okay. If he actually gets emotional, what's so wrong about that? Can I mean, there there's a level at which if he just becomes an absolute mess and can't even get any words out anymore, and then there's a point at which, uh, like, the dad getting emotional like that makes everyone a little uncomfortable. But he's got a lot of leeway there. Like, it's okay. a, it's a he's going to be a friendly crowd. Okay, but in so. sports, he's a sports writer, and everyone's going to know that. I think there is a phobia in sports in general and with men in general in public with having an emotional moment. I'm not saying he shouldn't do it because mm-hmm. he, he absolutely should. It's his daughter. Right. He should be vulnerable. Right. But remember Adam Morrison in the NCAA tournament crying on the court. You remember the memes with Michael Jordan or or uh, Tony Romo crying. And, uh, you know, I was there when Adam Morrison cried. And Brett Favre, when he retired, he cried. Uh, you know, it was, it. you know, Roger, Fed, Roger Federer cried at the Australian Open. And then it's always in the wake of that that we have this show. Like, it'll happen over a weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, it happened just with the PGA Championship. And, you know, the guy who was the PGA pro finishing 15th, he starts crying and, of course, people were going, you know, okay. Most people were saying, oh, that's cool. You're a really vulnerable moment. Look at him crying. Other he people was were like, crying because he finished 15? He was crying because he had realized a dream. Oh, you know? oh okay. Like, why wouldn't yeah. he cry? Yeah. But, but yeah. we have a Happy thing dream. in sports where we're like, you know, maybe it's not applicable to golf or tennis as much as the sports where we expect the athletes to be competitors and gladiators. But we see these vulnerable moments where, they, where people cry. And even, you know, the Michael Jordan crying Jordan meme ends up as a thing. Uh-huh. He cried because he made the Hall of Fame whatever. And right. Like, what, you know, I don't get that. It's really tough dudes that like to make fun of the people that cry. The guy, those guys go. are really tough. There you go. Is that what it is? Sarcastic. There are, there are some people, though, who habitually cry in sports. They cry. I think you can have a good cry that's authentic. <laughs> Yeah. But if you're crying every week, 
Who are you thinking of right now? Jeff Garcia, quarterback <laughs> NFL. I played high school football you're, with him. Your friend. He, he, He's your friend. He cried every week. He cried. <laughs> he would give a speech at halftime or before the game. Oh, my gosh. And he would cry. Yeah. And it was really powerful. Like the first the five times first he five did times. it, yeah. the sixth and seventh time, we were all kind of looking at each other going, when did the tears come? Here, There they go. He's oh, crying. Oh, man. That's <laughs> and, brutal. And we had a coach. We had this coach. This guy This guy was named Ed Johnson. Yeah. He was. Uh, he had coached. Uh, he had been at West Point. He was a military guy. Okay. Uh-huh. He was hardcore. Okay. Uh-huh. Tough guy. Yeah. He had a bunch of sayings, a bunch of no excuses, no nonsense. And we, we he came in and he inherited the program. Mark Speckman, who was... Uh, who uh, eventually coached at Willamette and now is at UC Davis as the offensive coordinator, was the original coach like my freshman, sophomore year. Uh, Ed Johnson comes in the junior year. He's there one year. Uh-huh. And uh, it was about the second or third game of the year. Jeff Garcia's in the locker room giving a speech. He starts crying. We're all looking at each other. Here we go. And uh, Ed Johnson goes, look at Jeff Garcia. He's crying. And we were like, in about four weeks, you're going to understand why the rest of us are not moved by this. But, you know, he cared. He yeah. cared. He was moved to emotion each right. time. I shouldn't. Right. You know, I don't know if he did it in the NFL. Yeah. I don't think it would work every week in the NFL. No. But Steven's right. The people who criticize it are mostly fake tough guys. I don't even think they're tough guys. Do you think they're fake tough guys, Steven, or real tough guys? Yeah, that, I was trying to use my sarcasm voice. They're definitely fake tough guys for sure. Have you ever cried in a sporting event? Yeah. Because you lost, or because you were they were happy tears. Um, it was most. It was yeah, losses, 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 frustra- losses, frustration. Just really, yeah. During a game? No, after the game. I might have cried they, when I struck out or something when I was a little kid. Did anybody see you, or did you cry in the privacy of the locker room? Uh privacy with myself. Mm-hmm. What was that? Because you didn't think it was acceptable to cry on the court? No, that's just because I. Got out of there as soon as I could because I was so Sprayed mad. to the locker room. Yeah, I was just so frustrated and mad with my yeah. team that we lost to terrible teams. And I'm like, what are you doing? Hmm. Have you cried, John? After? Uh, um, During? Amid sports? Uh, I When I was a kid, I can remember striking out when I was nine. I played with the older kids when I was nine. It was a miserable Little League season. Miserable. I batted 083. Oof. I was nine. Because my dad had played professional baseball, the major teams drafted me. Ouch. Because they thought, oh, his dad was Ooh, a pro player. That is so Let's put the nine-year-old up with, you know, I should have been in minors. They put yeah. me in majors. And yeah. uh, it wasn't that I it wasn't that I couldn't get a hit. I couldn't make contact. Yeah. It, I, it was all moving it was too fast fa- It was way yeah. too fast. I would get up there with three pitches. I'm That's out. I'm brutal. back in the dugout. I was striking three, out, three times a game. I was striking out. Yeah. And uh, I can remember going back to the dugout just being, like, hopeless. In Did that you cry in the dugout? Oh, yeah. Okay. And I also remember that I think back on it, it was good for me because there is no point in my adult life where I experience failure that I don't think I can overcome it. And I think it's I think it relates back to that youth sports experience and uh-huh. struggling and struggling and struggling. Finally at the end of the season I got a hit. Mm-hmm. And I and the next season was a great season. You know, it didn't it didn't go the way it went the year before Mm -hmm. and so i i think back i draw on that still Hmm. to this day where i go oh that was really good for me to struggle and by the way my parents didn't run into the dugout and save me (laughs) they let me sit in the dugout and cry yeah they were they pretended they didn't know me you know (laughs) (laughs) that's how you handle it parents damn it i want you to leave it here you got the bald faced truth been talking about crying on today's show
Anna, did, have you ever cried? At, we didn't ask you if you cried. Before we move on, before we pivot, you ever cry in a sporting event? Um, I've only cried once that I can remember, and it was I was like in eighth grade. I'd made all stars for softball. Mm-hmm. I played second base and shortstop, like that was my position. I was an infielder, but occasionally, you know how it is. Like at that age, yeah, they throw you into pitch. Oh boy. And uh, <laughs> you're on the mound, and I'm you've never pitched before. I had pitched here and there, but like I wasn't, I wasn't great. You know, I was just sort of like the backup to the backup to the backup. And then we had a really important game. I don't know if it was like divisionals or something like that. Right. And um, they just needed a pitcher, so they threw me in, and I, I think I walked like 13 people in a row. Ouch. Yeah. And they didn't take you out. Nope. Nope. They just left you out just there? left me just flailing. Had to eat and, the innings. Uh, innings eater right there. <laughs> well, and I don't know, like, what isn't there? I think there's rules in place now against that where they're like, hey, we don't want to traumatize anyone. Uh, they cut they cut them off at a certain point. But you're on an island, though, at that point. Right? Literally. Like, you're on the, the pitcher's mound is an island, and it was brutal. I was, I was on the mound. Pitching and crying. <laughs> it was so and bad. even the other team is rooting for you to throw a strike at that Basically, point. Basically, yeah. Did you get yeah. any close? Yeah. Like it was like, hey, we were yeah. six inches outside, Some or somewhere close. Were but there people... was just never, there was never any chance of me like striking someone out. It was so bad. I blame the umpire so in that situation. Anything close, he, he, they got to call a strike in that situation. Well, maybe there was. Maybe I'm just remembering it fondly. <laughs> maybe maybe there wasn't close. anything close <laughs> enough. You know. Well. But, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, but in the same way, <laughs> in the same way, you know, those are the kind of things that you encounter. In, but that's what the beauty of youth sports is. You Great. encounter yeah. stuff like that. You get through it. You cry your eyes out like I did. And then and then you realize, well, you survived, you know, and didn't stop me from playing softball again. Right. Youth sports is a is a safe place to fail. Mostly. Mostly, yeah. Safe place to fail. I, that's the thing, though. The way it is now, I don't feel like it's as safe because of the amount of pressure that is put on kids to perform at younger mm-hmm. and younger ages. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. To some extent. Yeah. I agree. Like, I, I just don't yeah. remember that kind of um, downward pressure from the grownups. Yeah, it wasn't from the grownups. The, in the generation that you and I It was peer pressure for us. Correct. I remember. Correct. Would we would play a baseball game, a little league baseball game on a Saturday, if we were playing a team that had like a kid in my class or my grade mm-hmm. that I knew well? Yeah, uh, it was a big game. Mm-hmm. Tommy Townsend was on the mound <laughs> when when I was twelve. Tommy Townsend, and uh, I took him downtown, hit a home run off him. As I'm going around second base, I took a peek over at him. He was crying on the mound. Oh, I felt terrible for him. Poor Tommy. Yeah, I felt terrible for him. But not that bad, because I had hit a home <laughs> run. Home run. How, how could you feel bad? Yeah. Not that bad. I wasn't going to leave the base path and go console him. You just didn't I talk trash over. at school the next day. You just say, I, hey, Tommy. What, what I was looking for was Tommy like tipping his cap to me as I go around second base. Instead. Instead, he had turned around, and in his mind, Monday was going to be devastating for him. Wow. At school. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, and I remember uh, rounding the bases in that. I still yeah. remember to this day. Yeah. Like the look in his eye. He had tears in his eyes as he's he's walking back towards the mound. But you know, what you ever rem- make someone else cry? No, but you know what I remember now? Like what? you know, I, this is like therapy. Um, 
<laughs> it's jarring now. That game where I pitched all those walks, that game was against some team from like Hermiston or Sheridan. Hmm. And I just remember growing up thinking, oh my gosh, like those girls from Sheridan and Hermiston, yeah. those girls can play. They've been out working in farms or something. They're like twice our size. They were bailing hay. They were. They must be bailing hay when they're not playing softball because we were all squat. You know, tiny little kids compared to them. Benches and cleared. Very intimidating. Benches cleared, and the kids from Park Rose ran for the parking lot. <laughs> That's how it went. <laughs> exactly. David in Vancouver is uh, in tears over this and has called in with his own little league crying story. Go ahead, David. Okay, so I've been thinking about this. So uh, I think I was about 10, so we're talking like 1978. Okay. And I know I was playing for State Farm Insurance, and I was a starting pitcher, probably about the third inning. Finally, the inning was over, and I spit and yelled something at the umpire. Oh, boy. And the umpire did not see that. And my dad, the manager, did not see that. But my brother-in-law, he was the assistant coach, he saw and heard me do that. And as I'm walking off, he took his hat off and slapped me across the face with it. Yeah. And they pulled me out of the game. And I, I remember sitting on the bench crying, like, for the last four innings. And I kept asking if I could go to my car. No, you're staying right there with your team. Nowadays, yeah. that assistant coach that. would have been locked up. <laughs> Nowadays, you got a good right. life lesson. <laughs> right, I did. You never did it again. Nope. I mean, when you said you go to your car, you, you weren't driving at 10. No, I wanted no, to go to well, your parents car went. instead of watching yeah. the game. And when you say brother-in-law, not your brother-in-law at that point in your life. Uh, yeah, he was. Oh, he's he was? My brother-in-law. Okay. okay. I'm not going to say his name. If he's listening, he knows who he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he did you a favor. He did. Totally. Yeah. And let's, I let's kept applauding for several years and... You got to respect the umpire, but yeah, you know, you also got to let him know, like, hey, man, that was a strike. Yeah, but I did it wrong. Yeah, you did it wrong. Mm. You're right. You good, good lesson. Good yeah, sports, good lessons, man. Did he deserve to get hit in the face? I don't, I don't I know. No, <laughs> but it depends if how hard you got hit. I kind of imagine it was one of those mesh hats from the 1979 era of Little League. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was probably more it's of a. State, it's had State Farm insurance <laughs> on it. It was more. It had a foam top. <laughs> You know, mine was they, round table pizza. Yeah, I had I had Sam's Auto Body. Sam's Auto Body. <laughs> How about you, Stephen? Sponsor sponsor from your childhood. You know what? I I don't remember my sponsor. I'll be honest. What? I oh, don't. You gotta you gotta remember. The I should sponsor. go check. I should least, check some old pictures. Yeah. At least one of them. Who was buying the pizza? Right. Yeah, come on. Pietro's one year too. Ungrateful. Big fight behind between Pietro's <laughs> and Roundtable table. on who would sponsor our oh, team. Oh boy, that was <laughs> those were the days. Leave it here. Five at five is next. This show's got a good energy today. I like that. I uh, it's the thing I look for first when I go. Was it a good show? Do we have a good show? The energy on this show is fantastic. I appreciate that you're here for it. Anna has the five at five all locked and loaded. We're going to talk about the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat. Is it a must win for Miami now all of a sudden? We'll talk about that coming up, plus a whole bunch more. We've got great sound, too, as Scottie Pippen talking about LeBron. Is he taking a shot at MJ? I said off the top of the show, MJ was the GOAT. Is Pippen throwing some shade? Also, uh, Tom Fernelli of CBS Sports had some interesting 
comments on Oregon. And uh, Russell Wilson, is he playing for his job this season? No longer about his legacy? We'll talk about it coming up. Anna's got the five at five. Steven is ready. Anna, you ready? Always. You hydrated? (laughs) Maybe. Okay. Here we go. The five at five. The five at five. The number one story as Anna sees it is... Antonio Brown. What? His agent is telling CBS Sports that uh, some NFL teams are expressing some genuine interest in him. The agent says he is exploring the right fit. That he's a multi-talented individual who does everything at a high level, and whatever he commits to, he goes all in. And this comes after Brown teased on Twitter that he would be suiting up for the Empire's game on Saturday following four losses in a row. So, yeah, he's a representative of that uh, ownership group, the National Arena League Albany Empire. He's 34. I... I kind of wonder what kind of interest there could be. But his agent saying it and an NFL team saying it are two different things. The NFL won't lie to a player. If he can play and they think he can play, he'll get a shot to play. If they don't think he can play, um, this is all just smoke. At this point, I want to say there's a little whiff of smoke to it, but um, let's see. The NFL, it, it is a very... Merit-based situation, a merit-based league, the NFL. Antonio Brown has been so problematic, though, for so many teams. It would have to be somebody that's going, look, um, uh, we can deal with him. I just, I don't know. I mean, the last time we saw him, he was walking off the field shirtless during a Buccaneers game in January of 2022. I'm not sold that teams really would be interested in him, but I think it has to do more with the fact that he's 34 and – and uh, not his talent level, in you know his talent level not quite being there. The number two story, as Anna sees it, Patriots have been docked two days of organized team activities. It was found that the franchise violated off-season rules. Now, in addition, in addition to losing those sessions, Coach Bill Belichick was also reportedly fined fifty thousand dollars. This is curious for me. The Patriots were scheduled to have an OTA on Thursday today, yesterday, but the team announced uh, the day before the session had been canceled. Uh, As for the actual violation, it appears to center around meetings instead of any on-field infractions. I didn't even know this uh, was a thing. Yeah, because the Players Association is powerful, okay? And so the Players Association has dictated that any activities that take place in this current window are optional. For returning players, veteran players, you cannot you cannot make it mandatory, but the Patriots put the meeting on the schedule, and in the eyes of the players' association, that converts it from an optional meeting to a mandatory meeting. So it was a 15-minute meeting, a special team session, that was made visible on the internal schedule. So players who were special teams players viewed that as i you know i don't have an option to go to that meeting that is mandatory because it's on the schedule so hefty fine for bill belichick who by the way likes to color outside the lines anyway also they're (laughs) going to lose uh those two otas they're going to get stripped of the otas but uh uh pro football talk had it originally i i saw it and i thought that's just the patriots doing what they always do you know they always are walking the line NFL teams and OTAs, 
It's supposed to be voluntary. Hmm. So the minute they put it on the schedule, it did not become voluntary. Seems like a highly avoidable infraction. Yeah. Administrative error. Yeah. But uh, that is the number one thing. OTAs. Okay. Dead zone. It's supposed to be a dead zone. Okay. 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 Number, it, by the way, it's organized team activities. I said that. Okay. I said that. All right. I said it first, and then I used OTA. Okay. Yeah, pay attention. Wow. <laughs> number three. <laughs> I got that right. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm not as cranky as Yankees manager Aaron Boone, who's made a habit lately of uh, getting on the umpire crew's bad side. This continued during last night's game against the Orioles. Boone was ejected for the third time in his team's last ten games. It was uh, his fourth ejection of the season, this time for arguing balls and strikes with the home plate umpire. And no manager has yet been ejected more times this year than Boone. What's going on with him? He's been, uh, I guess, wearing out umpires ever since he took over as New York's manager back in 2018. It's not just that. This is a team that is struggling. They're not playing their normal dominant Yankee baseball. Yeah, but they they won their last seven of seven of nine games. They're seven and three in their last ten, but they're thirty and (laughs) twenty-two, and they're behind Baltimore. They're behind Tampa in the standings. It hasn't been their best baseball this season through 52 games uh-huh. um, but as uh, Aaron Boone likes to say the work never ends and we'll uh, continue to try and I guess close that gap or put ourselves in a position to get over the hump and you know I know everyone in our room <clears throat> believes we will and you know we'll have a lot of battle scars uh, when we do finally get to the top of that mountain there he is he's kicking and screaming up that mountain though isn't he <laughs> he's been Okay, since he took over as the Yankees manager in 2018, he's been ejected 30 times. That's more than any other manager in baseball okay. during that span. Uh, he, uh, so that's a, it's a, it's a Yankee the, thing, though. Yeah. Billy Martin? Come on. <laughs> it's a Yankee thing. You know, he's one of those guys. You know how some people, they look funny when they're mad? Yeah. He's one of those guys. Really? Yeah. Like it's almost comedic? Yeah. I think mm. there are just some people, and we all know this, maybe that person is your father. Okay, if you're listening to this, could be your grandpa, your father, your mom. Uh, there's just certain people when they lose their composure, yeah, that kind of look comedic doing it. Huh. And uh, Aaron Boone's that way. He's he got tossed a couple times uh, in the last couple weeks, as you mentioned. Yeah, there, yeah. I was paying attention. Thanks. Uh, number four in the five at five. <clears throat> Shannon Sharp's home in Los Angeles was burglarized, burglarized last week. And get this. More than a million dollars worth of stuff was stolen. They stole things like watches, jewelry, designer bags. He called the police uh, May 19th after getting home from dinner and realizing that something wasn't quite right. He's offered a $50,000 reward himself for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrators. There were no obvious signs of forced entry into the home. No arrests have been made. And it's under investigation. This is uh, one of these cases where when you're a high-profile athlete who has watches, jewelry, and designer bags that are valued at a million bucks, you probably need to lock your doors, probably need to have some security cameras. If Shannon Sharp doesn't have these things, I'm not blaming him for being a victim here. Yeah, don't blame the victim. But 
I was puzzled by that. You know what it made me think of? What? I thought, well, it's a good thing we don't have those kind of things. <laughs> I Thank always think goodness. that. We don't have, because neither of we're us are really into. People. No. We're not. We're not name, name brand people. No. Like, don't bother breaking into our home. Because you'll find, <laughs> you'll get Barbies, lots of Barbies. Yeah. And uh, junk. We have junk. we have crap. Yeah, we have crap. Basically, the you burglars get costume jewelry. Please leave come a note. steal things from my house because I have a lot of crap in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Please, please. <laughs> I would leave them some trash bags and say, "Load it up." Uh, but here, the burglars would leave us a note going, "Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We risked a felony for this." Um, watches, jewelry, designer bags. Mm-hmm. He apparently he went to dinner. Yeah, yeah. He was out at dinner. I said that. He was out at dinner with oh. friends for two and a half hours. Yeah. And in that two and a half hours, they cleaned him out. So that feels like somebody was somebody was watching. Like oh they yeah. Were, they knew, you know, they knew there was an opportunity there. What if it turns out that the thief is connected to the restaurant where Shannon Sharp made the oh, reservation? Oh yeah. You know. Uh huh. I saw yeah. a crime ring one time in my hometown. <laughs> Go that on. That was based upon a car wash. Okay. Okay. Oh. The employees at the car wash. Yeah. It was one of these places where you get out of your car and they put it through the thing and you go into the place and you can kind of watch it go by in the windows. Yeah. And then somebody's vacuuming it out yeah. and hand toweling it. Yeah. And then you get it back. Gosh, and that's then, a place I'd like to go. Okay. Yeah. The, apparently what was happening is uh-huh. people were putting their cars through the car wash and then the employee who was doing the vacuuming <gasps> would... Park the car, hand the car, take a house key off the key ring. Wow. Look up the address on your registration in your glove box. Right, because it's there. Person, second person would run down the street to the hardware store while they're vacuuming no way. and toweling. No. Take just five minutes, right? Yeah. And make a copy of the key, and then they would write down the address, and they did this with select cars. Oh, man. Because police eventually figured out that... The burglars, what they had in common is these people had all been to the car wash that day. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. And so the burglars were would have a house key. Yeah. They let themselves in. They got your address. They got is your key. Is it bad that I kind of admire the thought that it took to make that work? I mean, somebody somebody was putting some it, brains it on that. It is bad. But just think about it. If they had taken their ingenuity and their motivation, uh, their, put their brain to work for I good, know. Anna. Yeah, I know. They could have founded Still, some AI company. That was pretty crafty, Instead, though. they were slowly vacuuming out the cars. Maybe that's a good argument for keeping your car keys separate from, from your, your house home key. key. Yeah. You know? Or locking your glove box. Oh, yeah. Locking taking your registration box. out. Yeah. Let's turn into a PSA. Yeah. I thought yeah. it was pretty... You're welcome. I thought it was standard just to give them the car key. Like, you keep the rest of your keys. Yeah, you do Yeah, that. but you know, a lot of people Not everybody does. Just you know, you see people walking around looking like janitors and custodians, like with, you know, a whole set of keys. They, they just hand over the whole set. The thing that was amazing is there must have been a hardware store like four stores down. Right. Because they were able, while the person was vacuuming and hand drying, yeah, to run down the street, get a key made quickly, right. and then come back. And by the way, how about the hardware store? Right. Like, hey. Can we get a little red flag here? <laughs> hey, Something you're back not... with another key? <laughs> right. right. What are you doing? <laughs> Finally, the number five story, as Anna sees it, feels so belabored today. Like it deals feels like with the Eastern Conference Finals. The Miami Heat were up three games to none on the Boston Celtics, Anna. Now it's three-two in their series. 
your number five. So story. they overcame an O three deficit. Now it's three two. Yeah, three two. How about that? Getting a little dicey for the heat. Heat's turned up. Well, I thought this was great because um, the head coach, Joe Mazzula, he was asked recently about what being in win or die mode means. And he answered back, sharing a story of how he met three girls with terminal cancer and how it impacted him. And I thought it was quite poignant. Is there something you're doing over the last 48 hours to keep yourself away from just being consumed with this? Are you watching different movies? Honestly, I met three girls under the age of 21 with terminal cancer. And I thought I was helping them by talking to them and they were helping me. And so having an understanding about what life is really all about and watching a girl dying uh, and smiling and enjoying her life, that's what it's really all about, and having that faith. You know, the other thing is you always hear people, um, you know, give glory to God and say thank you when they're holding a trophy, but you never really hear it in times like this. And so for me, it's an opportunity to just sit right where I'm at and just be faithful. That's what it's about. Yeah, trump card. He uh, he, uh, home run there. Yeah. You got tears in your eyes. I know. I'm. I don't know why I'm so weepy today. I shared that one with my mom. She's like total. You know, she eats that stuff. It's perspective, though, isn't it? And you know, nobody overcomes three zero, and comes back to win a seven game series. Blazers forced a game seven in the 2003 NBA playoffs when they were down three zip uh, to the Dallas Mavericks, but they lost the game seven in Dallas. This is a different thing because the Celtics have the home court. They would host game seven. So it's three to two with game six being in Miami tomorrow at 5.30 Pacific time. I kind of feel, and Stephen, help me out here, that this is must win for Miami in game six. There's no way they're winning a game seven in Boston. I tend to agree with you. Um, I wouldn't put anything past Jimmy Butler. He's done these type of things before, but Boston... You know, and I said this when they were down 3-0, like Boston is so much better than Miami. Miami's been hitting shots in the playoffs at a historic rate, way more than they did in the regular season. And at some point, it was going to regress. Now, it's come to a complete halt, and Boston has started to make shots. So can Miami make shots for one game? Maybe they can, but I'm with you. If they don't win this game six, I really do feel like uh, Boston's going to be the first team to come back from 3-0, which will be really annoying because they did it in baseball, you know, the first time too. Are you willing to wager on this kind of game would you take boston in seven as a better or is it like you know miami being the home team in six is just too much to worry about you know i actually i actually have already made that bet when they were down 3-0 i bet on boston that uh really eight, at eight to one yeah to win the series because boston i really feel boston is that much better than miami and just looking at shooting numbers, like Miami had been shooting out of their minds in the playoffs, the entire playoffs, and that's how they got to this point. And I just thought at some point it's going to stop. And Boston's the type of team that, you know, they can stop them because they have a lot of good defenders. And, you know, it's happened these last two games. And, uh, yeah, so I do think Boston's going to win the series. There you go. Now Boston to win the series is only plus 120 uh, to win the series. But uh, here we go. Uh, game on the line. Uh, for the Boston Celtics. Um, Anna, you like the perspective offered by Missoula there. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially, like, his line, like, I don't, you know, whether you believe in God or not, like, I, I enjoyed his line about how people like to hold the trophy and give glory, you know, mm-hmm. to the maker. And it's true. It's like, who are you, what do you do when you're suffering? Are you suffering well? What do you do when you're down and out? 
that's like the true test, right? Yeah, because really easy during the parade <laughs> yes. to be like, you know, my faith. Yeah. My faith. Right. But when you're down three zip or three one or now even three two, you know, that's truly uh Missoula talking about his faith. And perspective, because again, let's go back to Giannis in round one of the playoffs where he uh ends up uh losing and the reporter says to him, you know, this is a failure and you know, <laughs> yeah. like Giannis Try. I think he was trying to frame it, but I don't think he did as good a job as Missoula uh -huh. in framing it. And look, I think Missoula was in danger of being fired. Uh huh. It, he still might be, but because Bo Boston, as Stephen points out, Boston was a heavy favorite in this series, mm -hmm. and they have the better team. Mm -hmm. And he was getting out coached. Now that is all cooled down here over the last two games, and you have Jalen Brown talking about you know winning the last two games we just got to be consistent tonight we were the tougher playing team um, we set the tone from start to finish and uh we had a great team win we hit shots and they let us get two uh, so don't let us get another one don't let us get another one if they tie the series up three three two things happen uh it goes to game seven in in boston advantage celtics i think also the momentum of and the pressure of losing three straight after being up three zero uh, it might cave in on the Miami Heat. I, I actually think Game 7 could be a blowout with Boston. But this is an interesting one. This is the Eastern Conference Final Championship tomorrow, in my mind. And, and, mm. and you made the point of it being Game 7 in Boston. You know, Before, you talked about the Blazers-Mavs series. It was Game 7 back in Dallas. They Dallas, were the favorites. Yeah. So, like, yeah, Boston gets down 3-0 as the favorite. It's so big now to have that Game 7 in Boston where – I'm with you. Like, if the Heat lose this one, like, their their confidence has got to be down at the bottom, and Boston is just riding high. Yeah, and I, I remember that game. The Blazers hung tough in that game in Dallas, but the environment in Dallas was just electric, and you, it's a lot to overcome, not to mention crawling back from a three-game deficit. It would, I think it would be the opposite. It's a downhill run for the Celtics if, if they truly can tie the series 3-3 and, and go back home. Well, maybe they just need to put Peyton Pritchard in more. Yeah, he's not playing in this series, not getting enough time, or any time, really. So, it's uh, a very Homer thing of me to say. I like but... to say that. Uh, well, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> All right, we have so much more ahead, including Punch It Audio, where you're going to hear about the Oregon Ducks. Tom Fernelli of CBS Sports thinks Oregon can get to the Pac-12 title game. Also, uh, we got some Pac-12 baseball to talk about, and Scotty Pippen taking some shots at MJ. All of that still ahead. We got the ACC and the Big 12 talking about shifting their revenue model when it comes to the NCAA tournament, the college football playoff cash. Uh, real quickly here, Wall Street Journal uh, reporting last week that the uh, ACC is uh, looking at unequal revenue sharing, meaning basically meaning that if your team makes the college football playoff or the NCAA tournament, you keep a larger share of the earnings instead of splitting it equal with the rest of the conference members. Right now, let's just as an example, the Pac-12 conference, uh, if Oregon makes the playoff, they get a 113th share of the playoff payout. Uh, the 12 members all get an equal share, and the conference itself takes a share. So this unequal share model is being uh, put out, uh, especially in uh, the ACC, So because Florida State is saying, look, if we went to an unequal share model, we would get $10 million more in revenue. Um, and uh, 
the Pac-12, I think, will follow suit. I think the Pac-12 has probably already discussed this. Or That's how you keep Oregon and Washington really happy. You say, hey, you, you eat what you kill. And as, uh, as uh, John Wilner of the uh, Bay Area News Group wrote, he said, Ohio State's not going to share their cash equally with Rutgers, are they? Forever. Uh, so keep an eye on that as all of this unfolds. I think that it makes sense. You want... You know, teams and programs that are investing in football and men's basketball in particular to get rewarded with payouts that are uneven relative to the other schools. It just makes sense. Let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Tom Fernelli, CBS Sports, talking about the Oregon Ducks football season. They've lost Kenny Dillingham, their offensive coordinator. He's gone to Arizona State to be the head coach. Will Stein will call the plays this season. Fernelli talking about the Ducks. He loves Oregon. Here's why. Punch it. This is an Oregon team that I do expect will compete for the Pac-12, and I think this is a huge year for Bo Nix. I think he came back, A, to help the Oregon Ducks win the Pac-12 and get to the playoff, but also to improve his draft stock. Now, the question is, the offensive coordinator who got the most out of him last season, Kenny Dillingham, has since left for the Arizona State job. So it will be key for Bo Nix early in the season to play well. And this is an Oregon team that, if you look at the way their schedule breaks down, there is a very good shot that this team will be 5-0 and when it's heading to Washington in mid-October for a showdown, which will be one of the bigger games against Michael Penix and the Huskies in the Pac-12 this season. I do think the Ducks are going to be one of the top two teams in the Pac-12. I do think they're going to reach the Pac-12 championship. Can they win it? Well, we're going to have to wait a few more months to find that one out. Fernelli calling his shot. Uh, look, they've they've got uh, Texas Tech in, in the non-conference schedule on the road. I think Texas Tech has got seven or eight wins written all over it, so it's not going to be a pushover game for Dan Lanning in non-conference play. But there's no Ohio State, there's no LSU, there's no uh, there's no game against Georgia this year for Lanning in season two. So I do think they'll be five and zero. I agree with Fernelli going to the Washington game. I also think the Huskies are going to be five and zero. They have to go on the road to Michigan State in non-conference play, but um, I think. You're going to get 5-0 and against 5-0. and Both teams have a bye week before that big matchup in Seattle this year. But that's the game. And then down the stretch for both teams, Oregon's got to play USC, got to play Oregon State. Uh, USC's got to play Utah, Washington. Oregon State's got Utah, Washington, and Oregon. Uh, it's going to be fun. I think the college football season can't get here fast enough for me. Mike Tannenbaum talking about russell wilson playing for his job he says not his legacy his job punch it i worked for coach parcells in 1997 with the new york jets sean payton worked for bill parcells here's exactly what he said fellas i go by what i see the best players will play russell wilson isn't fighting for his legacy he's fighting for his job he could care about salary cap charge dead money the best players will play they will draft his replacement if he doesn't do everything he says from Day one, if you go back to his press conference, Sean Payne talked about there will be no outside coaches, mm-hmm. mentors yep. in the building. Yeah. He he is the new Take sheriff control. of town. That's right. And he is beholden to no one, including Russell Wilson's guaranteed money. Russell Wilson, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed and the Seattle Times noticed, 
has kept a lower profile this offseason than last. No hype videos on social media. No chronicles of his globetrotting. No merchandise pitches. No catchphrases. Also, he's lost weight. He won't say how much, but he's showed up thinner after last year's 5-12 and season, Denver's sixth straight losing season. Uh, Sean Payton is coach. Russell Wilson, leaner, meaner maybe? I don't know. But he had only 16 touchdown passes and 11 interceptions last year. He was sacked 55 times. 55 times and 4-11 and as the uh, season started. Sean Payton was was 5-12 and in his year, but Russell Wilson going 4-11. and Don't you think that it – I mean, it can't get any worse than it was a season ago. And Sean Payton, do you have a lot of trust in Sean Payton to turn that team around? Because that team is very talented outside yeah. of Russell Wilson, how he played last season. Like, this seems like a team that could – sneak into the playoffs or be a playoff team if Sean Payton really, you know, can get the most out of Russell Wilson. I do. I think, um, you know, Payton's really interesting. He has kept both of his coordinators away from the media. Um, The free agents they signed was the most expensive class in the NFL this season. They scrapped a mini camp. They did not allow media to talk to any of the free agents, any of the coaches. Russell Wilson's the first person talking on behalf of the Broncos. He's saying, you know, is a journey of high and lows and all that stuff. But what jumped out to me, Stephen, was 55 sacks. It's not all Russell Wilson's problem. He didn't play well. He also was, you know, he was running for his life a little bit back there. And we got used to seeing him run for his life in Seattle but still do okay. I just wonder if the investment that Denver made this offseason, that the biggest beneficiary could be Russell Wilson here. I don't know. I, You know, so far, though, that trade looks like a knockout win for the Seahawks. We'll see what happens. A lot of interest. Stanford golfer Rose Zhang. She passed Tiger Woods for the most individual tournaments won at Stanford. We're, we're efforting her to get her on the show. Here she is. Punch her. I mean, it was, it only felt like last week. It was quite literally last week where I tied that record. And I didn't really have anything in mind. It was more of, I've got school. I got to grind on my P-sets, got to grind on my midterms. And uh, I felt like a normal student. Uh, but that's what is so beautiful about being at Stanford. Um, I get to be myself. And the people around me treat me the same way. So um, this, these record books are simply incredible and i'm forever thankful to be uh, a part of it but uh, at the end of the day i'm just living my life she is a sophomore at stanford she's winning at a better clip than tiger woods did she's the world number one amateur and she is quietly building an nil arsenal that is unmatched she just signed with adidas and um you know she's 19 and earning a fortune already as an amateur. And this is she's just beginning. And Adidas jumping all over it going, you know, we got to have her in our stable. It's not her only deal. She also has Callaway. She has a sunglass NIL deal. Beats by Dre. Paradox. She's got an asset management company that she's an NIL uh, partner with. Um, really, really uh, good story. I want her on because I would... I, I'm interested just talking to her about what it is like in her world. Adrian Wojnarowski says that the NBA draft starts at number three. That's the Blazers pick. What's he talking about? Here's Woj. Punch it. Especially at three, Jonathan. 
you have got to get back a really, really elite player to trade out the third pick in a draft that most agree it, how it looks now is a three-player draft. Now, five years from now, we may say we missed on one of those. It's two other guys. But right now, a three-player draft. Portland, to me, is really the – in a lot of ways, I think the draft starts with them. Victor Wembanyama projected to go number one. Brandon Miller, Alabama, likely number two pick. The Blazers would be on the clock. Scoot Henderson, that third player. Uh, Jonathan Givney talking with Woj. Here's the other side of that conversation. Punch it. I mean, historically speaking, it's very rare for a top three pick to be traded. And they're going to need something to absolutely blow them away in order to trade that pick is what I've been told. And right now it doesn't look like that trade is is on the table and i think that they're also very excited about where they're slated to pick you know for them to move up on lottery night from five to three they very well could have slid back to seven it just puts them in a great position where they can add a player scoot henderson or brandon miller who can play a role for them next year and and help them win games because that is their goal absolutely is to win games next year with, with damian lillard but also prepare for you know two or three years down the line when, when Damian Lillard is not you know the focal point of the franchise and you have the ability to hand the keys off to a Shaden Sharp or to a Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller. I mean, it's honestly, it's the best of both worlds for them. I just, I don't see a trade out there that that's going to make sense for them. Best of both worlds. Why does it feel so complicated? Well, because we have diminished faith that the Blazers will get it right. Like, look, if we're being real, we're sitting together and we're talking about the Blazers it, the problem isn't that they have the number three pick and a roster that is iffy around Damian Lillard uh, and, and has some gaps in where it lines up age-wise, like Lillard being a guy who's turning 33. The problem is we don't trust the Blazers to get it right. Steven, isn't that it? Like, you know, we go, hey, otherwise we would all be going, this is great, the Blazers are picking at three, they're going to get a player there that can really help them, or they're going to trade for a player, but... I think it's complicated because it's the Blazers. It's got to be it because the thing about it is people don't want to trade Dane because the Blazers actually got that pick right, right? So you, they're holding on to that grasp and saying, they got this pick right. We can't trade this guy because it's, we're, it's nothing's guaranteed. Well, you know what? Sometimes you got to take some risks. And, you know, as Will just saying, this is a three-person draft, and the Blazers have the third pick, so they're going to get one of those guys. And it really seems obvious to me, John, that you got to use this draft pick. And – there's not many historical you know, markers that say trade the number three pick and it's going to work out. This is where you draft all-stars. This is where you draft really good players. And I understand Dame may be better than Scoot Henderson ever will be, but Scoot Henderson is going to be good for another 12 years. Damian Lillard, how many more years does he have? It's not that you want to trade Dame. It's just you got to be interested in trading him. You have to be vocal about it and say, we will trade him if the right deal is available. If it's not, keep Dame and build it with Scoot Henderson and Dame. It's okay. But at the same time, don't be stuck with just one guy and say that's the only path we got. We got to have the Blazers got to have open paths, and I think you're right. They've been hindered by such bad management throughout their entire lives. Like, there's no faith, and there shouldn't be. But hopefully, the Blazers get this one right. Yeah, and and part of it is too with Lillard. I don't think anybody's going to blame him if the Blazers go with Scoot Henderson or you know or Brandon Miller, and Dame goes. I just can't do this. Like, he's already on record saying he doesn't want a 19- or 20-year-old thing. He's not into the timeline of that. You know, I don't think he's going to get blamed. There's a lot of people on Team Dame when it comes to that fact. But I just – I look at the franchise and I say, 
five years from now, Lillard's not here. Whether he's retired or in another uniform, he's not part of the Blazers organization. But the three picks should be part of the future. And so for that reason, you either have to convince him that it's okay, as you said, you play him alongside uh, a player like Scoot or Brandon Miller, or you are, you have you find some peace with pivoting out of this era of Blazers basketball. And the thing is, if it is Brandon Miller, like that will fit a need that the Blazers have needed forever. Now, Scoot, ten years they've been looking for the you know a wing that can play. Yeah, they've been looking for this guy forever, so that will help from day one. Now, if they get Scoot, it's a little different story because it'll be another two-guard lineup with some short guys in there. But at the same yep. time, the talent is there. And you hear some guys talk about, like, this is the best guard prospect they've seen in you know a decade or five years. That's how good this guy is thought of. So to pass on that, it, you're going to have to get a lot back in return. Arizona Cardinals have released wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, last season, uh, he had a team-high $30.75 million cap hit tops among receivers seventh highest in the league cardinals doing this to save some cap space they save eight million dollars in cap space uh hopkins is 30 they couldn't trade him or decided not to tj hushmanzada former oregon state player says he's not surprised that hopkins got cut punch it when they start to talk about your personality more than your production this is what happens like if, if you look at beyond hell of a football player hell of a receiver but he's been talking a lot lately. You get a little older. And so they're not talking about what you're doing on the field. They're talking about the things you're saying more than what you're doing on the field. That's the beginning of the end. Yeah, look, uh, Hushmanzada knows it, that you know it becomes a problem. But Hopkins skipped the voluntary team activities. Uh, he said he was going to work out on his own. Uh, this guy has 17 touchdowns in three seasons missed the first six games of the 2022 season he was uh, he had violated the league's uh, performance enhancing drug policy but uh, it'll be marquis brown it'll be rondale moore uh, and maybe whoever else the cardinals bring in but remember they traded for this guy just three years ago and you know he was traded for a fourth round pick and for david johnson and it was uh, supposed to be a guy and, you know, he's been really good. He only has three drops. So where does he land? Uh, speculation that he will end up with the Bills, the Chiefs, or the Lions. As Hushmanzada said, he can still play. It seems a lot like the Odell Beckham situation. When he got released by the Browns, goes to the Rams, helps them win a Super Bowl. Like DeAndre may be that guy where, you know, he doesn't have what he used to have, but he can get a team over the top, and he can be still that number one or number two option. Scotty Pippen. Says LeBron James is the wait, not the goat. He says he's the best statistical player ever. Is he taking a shot at MJ, or is it shade at LeBron? Let's talk about this. Here's Pippen, punch it. LeBron will be the greatest statistical guy to ever play the game of basketball, and there's no comparison to him, none. So, does that make him the greatest player to ever play the game? I'll leave that out for debating because I don't believe that there's a great player because our game is a team game and one player can't do it. Like, I seen Michael Jordan play before I came to play with the Bulls. You guys seen him play. He's a horrible player. He was horrible to play with. He was all one-on-one. He's shooting bad shots. And all of a sudden, we become a team and we start winning. 
everybody forgot who he was. Pip throwing shade. I want to talk about this. I'll tell you what I think about it. I want your take on it as well. Scotty Pippen on Michael Jordan. Is it just sour grapes and Scotty wanting to promote his own legacy? Or is he telling the truth about LeBron and MJ? 503-417-7575. LeBron will be the greatest statistical guy to ever play the game of basketball. And there's no comparison to him. None. So, does that make him the greatest player to ever play the game? I'll leave that out for debating because I don't believe that there's a great player because our game is a team game and one player can't do it. Like, I seen Michael Jordan play before I came to play with the Bulls. You guys seen him play. He was a horrible player. He was horrible to play with. He was all one on one. He's shooting bad shots. And all of a sudden, we become a team and we start winning. Everybody forgot who he was. Look, you tell me, Stephen, what do you hear from Pip there? It's a little shade. Um, I will say that for sure, because he, he basically said Jordan was not a winning player until I got there. And that's true. Like I've made this argument for a lot of different players. NBA guys are so talented. No matter who's out there on the court, somebody has to get stats. Somebody's going to score the points. Somebody's going to get the rebound. Someone's going to get the assist. It's, it's has to happen because these guys are so good and there's going to be points being scored. There's a difference between a winning player and a losing player. Pippen kind of said Jordan was a losing player until I got there. And I, you know, it's not, it's, I don't, I don't buy that because Jordan was awesome. Now I will say at the start of his career, there was that, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't really alive and watching him when, when Jordan was doing this, but from what I've read and what I have seen, people did have that debate about it. Like, is Jordan just a score? Does he actually play good team ball? So Pippen has a point, but at the same time, as he got older, he evolved into that better team player. And so, he got a better supporting cast. I mean, clearly yeah. he had a better supporting cast. And so I didn't blame him early in his career. He was, that was a bad Bulls team that didn't have a Scottie Pippen on it. He had to do it himself. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like the Dame. Like a lot of times Dame will take some bad shots because, you know, what, you don't want to pass the other guys. So, I, <laughs> you know, like I get it. I get what Pippen's saying, but I don't agree with him at all. Now, all right, I, I, I agree with him on the LeBron part. LeBron being the best statistical guy. Yeah, there's no really argument on that because – his stats, he's got more points. His stats right. are insane now. Yeah, he's got more points, and it. it I kind of heard Pippen. Let me let me play a part of this again. I heard Pippen talking about himself a little bit in there. I, he's throwing shade, but isn't Scottie Pippen really saying that? Hey, let's not make Michael Jordan the greatest of all time here. He, before we became a team, he wasn't a great player. Before I arrived, he wasn't a great player. It wasn't just Jordan. LeBron will be the greatest statistical guy to ever play the game of basketball. And there's no comparison to him. None. So, does that make him the greatest player to ever play the game? I'll leave that out for debating. Because I don't believe that there's a great player. Because our game is a team game. And one player can't do it. Like, i seen Michael Jordan play before I came to play with the Bulls. You guys seen him play. He's a horrible player. He was horrible to play with. He was all one-on-one. He's shooting bad shots. And all of a sudden, we become a team and we start winning. Everybody forgot who he was. Mm, I don't think they forgot. I was well aware who Michael Jordan was uh, it, when he before Pippen got there and after. It reminds me a little bit of when LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami. 
and he had Dwayne Wade, he had Chris Bosh, and the criticism he endured there. But LeBron was a different player when he had LeBron when he had Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh with him. He didn't have to do it all, and you know he's Pippen. I think is advocating a little bit for the supporting cast of the Bulls. And, you know, the Last Dance documentary was Michael Jordan's story. It was his version of the story. It glorified him. I get it. But anybody who saw that era of basketball knows that Jordan was a killer. And, yes, the supporting cast helped him and was a big part of him. And I feel like he became a better player as he matured and trusted, you know, Steve Kerr and trusted Grant and trusted Pippen. And, you know, but let's not forget, it was Luke Longley and Bill Wennington out there with Michael Jordan, okay? And it, you know, it I think the LeBron Jordan debate is kind of silly. I try not to fall into it too much until I hear people just anointing LeBron as like physically LeBron at his size and what he does on the basketball court is amazing to me. But I look at Jordan, there were a lot of players in NBA history before and since who had Jordan's height, who had Jordan's weight, who, you know, who looked like him. But there's something special about what Michael Jordan did in elevating himself above, above all others. He's the best offensive player, the best defensive player. He was a killer. Is there just, you think there could just be some resentment, Scotty, because... Totally. It's like, you know, they couldn't have got along, right? Like, back in the day when they're on the team, like, yeah, they're winning games, but Scotty probably wanted to be the man. Um, nowadays, uh, Michael Jordan's son is dating Scotty's ex-wife. Like, there's got to be some just hatred, I think, for Scotty and Michael Jordan together. And Michael Jordan, you know, it's been noted that he wasn't the best teammate, right? So, like, it, right. it couldn't have been super fun to be Michael Jordan's teammate and him just getting all the spotlight, you getting nothing. So, I just think, I just think there's a lot of maybe jealousy and just resentment for Scotty. Right resentment now. is the right word. I just, I don't think it goes to hatred. But I think there's resentment there, and I think a lot of people in that North Carolina community would argue that when Jordan was in college as a freshman at North Carolina and he hits that, that big shot, like I think a lot of people would probably argue that Jordan was a pretty good player and a pretty good team player alongside James Worthy. And Pippen sounds bitter to me. You know, there's some bitter there. He's tweaking him, and, but I don't think Michael Jordan was horrible. I don't think he was Michael Jordan. In those early years, and and I remember those early years in playoff exits and frustrations with coaching staffs, and you know he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, you know the Bulls weren't good because of MJ. Well, you know they were in the playoffs, and he was the MVP, won the scoring title, he was the Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah, it was a team game, but he was the MVP, and he was the Defensive Player of the Year. Um, I just. I don't think Pip ever got what he felt was proper recognition, and his contract was bad. Remember, he signed a bad deal. He may be one of the more underappreciated players ever. Like, he was, I mean, maybe the best defensive player of all time, right? Like, that's how good he was. Yeah. And, and, and I think if you talk about Pippen's legacy, you have to acknowledge he came into the league, he signed a bad contract, he didn't get paid until the end. Um He's just mad. I think he's I think he's a little mad and I can remember him begging MJ to come out of retirement and play again when he'd he'd uh, he'd retired but they won six championships together. Why can't Scottie Pippen just go, "Hey, you know that guy, 
Without that guy, I don't win six championships because he doesn't without Michael Jordan there. All right. We uh, have a great week of shows. I appreciate everybody who is here listening to this program. Grab the podcast. Uh, You can also check us out next week. Uh, We're off Monday. BFT not on a Monday show for the holiday, Memorial Day holiday. So we'll catch you Tuesday right here, wherever you're listening to this program. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time. Just a good time. Have a great weekend, everybody.